Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Jewanced. We're two Jewish guys. We grew up in America. We live in Israel. And we're looking to challenge popular conceptions, think critically, examine independently, and most of all, seek nuance. Each episode, we'll host a different guest. Together, we'll take a deep dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, technology, food, the arts, business, you name it. A lot of it will deal with the Jewish world in Israel, but not all. Our goal? To create a platform where people share their stories, insights, and visions. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, debate, and discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Greetings, everybody out there in podcast land. This is Ben and Dan coming at you with another live episode of Juanced. Dan, how you doing this week, man? I'm doing great. Hanukkah is almost upon us. I was going to make a rhyme, but I stopped myself short. Hanukkah, Hanukkah. <laughs> What's your favorite Hanukkah song? What's my favorite? Mao's Tour. I always liked Mao's Tour. Dreidel, dreidel. Nah, I, I never liked the English <laughs> ones. I never liked the English ones. I always liked the Hebrew ones. Even though I don't know the words to Mao's Tour past the first the first uh, you know, verse. So like the Israel, uh, our Israeli audience will understand this. There's a guy on the news here. I don't know if it's channel 12 or 13. He's like a commentator. His name is actually Maoz Sul. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, I, no, and I think it's funny every time. So, okay. Yeah. 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 It, it for real is funny. Um, yeah. But I'm excited. I, uh, Hanukkah's fun. It's a fun holiday because uh, we get to, uh, we get to eat good food. We get to see our friends, maybe not this year. Uh, we get to celebrate a little bit, and we don't really have to do anything for those of us who are observant. You know, we can uh, kind of just have the fun part without all the, you know, limitations or the restrictions that we get on some holidays. So it's fun. It is fun. Yeah. It's a good time, and the kids like it, and, and you get to eat a lot of fried foods, which if I'm being painfully obvious <laughs> with myself, I'm doing anyways. But Not just pass. on Hanukkah. Yeah, I get a pass. Hey, so, do you remember? You, I'm sure you do. A couple weeks ago, we had that great episode with Is Resilience, which I, can't, I can never mention that name. Is resilience. Is resilience. Of course, with uh, Michael Dixon and Naomi Baum. Okay. That's right. So we wanted to give a shout out. The book finally came in the mail here. Awesome. And, and uh, we got the book and I can't wait to read it. Big shout out to uh, Michael and Naomi on their uh, wonderful book. And hopefully a lot of people in Israel and around the world can develop some is resilience. I got it right. Yes, is resilience. Um, so make sure you can order it uh, online. I think on their website, on Amazon. Uh, and we encourage you to check out their book. Just look at that. The quote that the right on the top there from Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. Oh, inspiring I stories. A I love a shalom. Inspiring stories that demonstrate a shining example of resilience for the world. Um, so wonderful, wonderful. Uh, we're glad we had them on the show. And uh, we encourage you to check out the book whenever you get a chance. Um, so before we get to our show today, and we have an exciting Hanukkah-based episode. Right, with, with Rabbi Professor uh, Jeffrey Wolf. With Rabbi Professor Jeffrey Wolf, who we're going to introduce in a second. He's waiting patiently here. We got a couple of announcements. So a couple of quick announcements. So, so check it out. Listen, uh, Juance has been growing from the, by leaps and bounds. We have listeners on, on every, every continent except for Antarctica. We're working on it. Working on it. And, uh, and we'd love to be able to provide excellent content for listeners like you. Uh, but as a listener-supported con- uh, podcast, we rely on your support. So if you would, uh, we're going to make it easy for you guys. If you'd like to make a single donation or an ongoing donation, you can do so on PayPal or on our Patreon accounts. 
And if you are a company or an organization and you would like to uh, support our podcast and have us give you regular shout outs, you can do so as well. We can, you can sponsor an episode. You can sponsor an event. There's lots of things you can do there. Lots of stuff. So uh, for more information, reach out to us at www.juanced.com. And help keep the magic going. That's right. Greetings, Juanced listeners. Benny and Dan here. These times, more than most, we understand the challenges of connecting an audience with creative and meaningful content. So if you're looking to engage your community, we've got the perfect solution for you. Introducing Juanced Live. So check it. Just like on the show, we can be pretty engaging, inquisitive, and witty in person, too. And our unique talent in bringing out complexity, nuance, and captivating content from guests doesn't end at the studio door. So whether you're interested in hosting a live dedicated podcast or having us moderate your organization or community's next panel event with authentic and emotion evoking audience participation, Juance Live is your creative solution. Plus, with our extensive network of intriguing guests on a variety of topics, Juance has got you covered. So the next time you want to engage your crowd, don't be like everyone else and do another run-of-the-mill webinar or speakers panel. Now, think outside the box and deliver a meaningful and memorable experience that your audience will never forget. For more information on how to engage Juanced Live for your next event, visit us today at www.juanced.com. <laughs> and with those commercial announcements, we are glad to introduce uh, our guest on our uh, topic tonight. So, Benny, why don't you uh, take it away? All right. So our guest today is Rabbi Professor Jeffrey R. Wolf, an internationally known scholar, lecturer, and public figure. He's an associate professor in the Talmud department at Bar Ilan University, specializing in the history of halakha, medieval and Renaissance Jewish history, the philosophy of Rabbi Yosef B. Soloveitchik, and the interaction between Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. He has a lengthy bio here. I'm not going to, to read it all, uh, but we'll just say this. Under uh, uh, his PhD in medieval Jewish history at Harvard University and spent two years at Yale as a postdoctoral fellow. He studied for nine and a half years under Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, from whom he received smicha in 1982. He's a leading advocate and spokesman for modern orthodoxy. In Israel, he's a member of the executive committee of Ma'ale, the Center for Religious Zionism, and was recently elected to the Central Committee I guess not so recently because this is an old bio. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Uh, for uh, Habayat Yehudi, the Jewish Home Party. Uh, wow, he's proficient in five languages, English, Hebrew, French, Italian, and German. And uh, maybe even six, as my dad would say, uh, bad English as well. Uh, he's lectured throughout Israel, North America, and Europe, and he's frequently interviewed in the media uh, in Israel and abroad. Uh, Rabbi Wolf, how you doing? I'm doing great. I'm really pleased to be here. I'm very, very excited. Um, I just want correction. Um, <clears throat> since that bio was written, uh, of course, Bayat Yehudi split, and I was, and I resigned from the Central Committee. But that's, you know, you blink in Israel the past five years. No, what five years? Three years. You blink, and everything changes. So that's it's all right. We're gonna have to fire a researcher. <laughs> he's, he's, fired. Kaze, uh, he's fired. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. I'm really very pleasure to be here we we were very excited um we, we kind of love to do these thematic episodes around jewish holidays and we were very excited uh with hanukkah kind of snuck up on us at least snuck up on me i didn't realize it's this week um so we're we're, we're taping this right. on monday well, and the episode will also it's going live we have a live audience and it'll also uh, air on thursday which is uh Nerishon. it's the first uh, candle Nerishon. So it snuck up right. on us because this is both right. the slowest and the fastest year of our lives. Yeah, at the same time. At the same time. <laughs> no, it's also because it's also because I normal like like every if you if you don't go out of your house hardly, so every day looks like every every other day. So it's like there's no 
yeah, <laughs> even the exactly. even the onset, you know, of even the uh, what's the word? Even the uh, sort of the telltale signs, like um, the fact that they were, you know, the Sif Ganyo started appearing during Sukkot. Like, who was a bakery to see? Right. That that's you know, how we. That's how, for those who are new to Israel, that, I mean, kind of how you measure the passage of time by when you start hearing Christmas songs and when you start seeing Halloween decorations or Easter decorations in the States. So here in Israel, it's when do you see Sufganiyot in the bakeries and when do you see Ozney Haman in the bakeries? And that's how you can tell the passage. That was the next word. <laughs> by the way, I was thinking yeah, before before we get down to more serious stuff, but I, it's like there were two things that I, I don't want to forget to mention. Is number one, you mentioned Mausur. Mausur is a classic. But one of the great things about Mausur is the fact that it's been, it's been, um, it has melodies. Every single Ada, every single Jewish community has a different way of singing. So, for example, in, um, tomorrow in my uh, lecture, I'm going to end in my lecture on Italian Jewish history. I'm going to play for them the Livornese the one, and this, and I really recommend that people go to these. To, well, there's a website called piot.org.il, which is now part of the National Library, and it's like you can blow your mind. Wow, that's number one. Number two. Um, since a lot of the Sufganiyot now, when you go, when we go into the stores, look like some kind of Dunkin' Donuts horror story. Um, you put on five pounds just looking at them. Uh, so I, re- I, this is the time actually for fusion food, and I strongly recommend that Ashkenazim try spinge, which uh, is spinge. what North Africans make, and it's just as oily, but it's actually better, and it lacks all of the extra cream that they've done to destroy the Sufganiyot. So. Anybody who's listening, try to find a Moroccan or an Algerian friend and ask them to make you spinach because you won't regret it. Absolutely. And I should say that, that what you just said made me think of something that I didn't read in your, in your bio, which is that you are an uh, eminent scholar and an expert on the, uh, on, on the Italian Jewish community. That's, my, that's my, actually my, my major area of expertise. Right. That's very, very interesting. How many, how many Jews today are remaining in Italy? Oh, about 15,000. Okay. Wow, that's it. About fifteen thousand. There are about five. There are there. Uh, the major communities are in Milan, and uh, and Rome. They're scattered. There's three hundred and or no, I'm sorry, less, two hundred in Florence, and there's fifty over there. And what's interesting also in southern Italy, there's a lot. They're coming out of the woodwork. A lot of Inquisition ruled in southern Italy for long longer than did even in Spain. So there are a lot of these like descendants of Anusim of Muranos, the people who first converted, who are coming out of the woodwork also. So it's 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 it's, it's in flux, but it's always. The, it, its demographic has always been way out of proportion to its contribution because Italian Jewry has got to be, without a doubt, one of the most important communities in terms of its creativity, in terms of serving as a place where, where different traditions, different Jewish communities meet, and also where traditions get transferred. Because when you're moving from right from from south north to south or east to west, you always end up going through Italy. So it's got it's very very rich that way and very exciting. And if I understand correctly, it's not. Uh, Ashkenazi and it's not Sephardi. It's no, no, no. They're uh, they're uh, they're they're a community all by themselves. Uh, although I mean, there's an Ashkenazi community. Um, the Ashkenazim who originally moved into uh, uh, moved into Italy actually ended up becoming more Italiani. The Sephardim kept themselves pretty separate. In fact, there's a when the Jews moved to Leghorn, which is this fancy, a very important city on the uh, western west northwest coast of Italy. They actually made a condition with the city that they shouldn't let Ashkenazim in. So we talk about how the about how, how Ashkenazim lorded over the Sephardi. I mean, this has gone back and forth uh, in very different ways over over time. But they have their own minagim, they have their own sidur, they have their own um, they have their own music. It's it's a very very unique, uh, fascinating. There's community. actually and there is a, and there are and there are communities here. 
I mean, you have the, you have the Italian synagogue in Jerusalem, which I recommend everybody should visit. Um, okay, I should be I should be open. I'm, I'm a member of the board of the museum, so you should <laughs> see the museum also. Um, and uh, there are there are there are little pockets of Italian Jews in the Shvela too, actually. Wow, fantastic! I've actually been to that synagogue a few times. Uh, we used to we used to go more frequently and spend Shabbat in Jerusalem, and uh, I would actually uh, walk. Um, even if it was a long walk, I'd walk. It's a beautiful synagogue. I mean, it's it's yeah, just stunning. It, it was brought piece by piece from Mantova. It's just uh, it's, it's just gorgeous. And I always enjoyed the um, the service. It was unlike anything I've ever seen. I spent a lot of time in different kinds of Sephardic and Mizrahi synagogues of the different Eidot. I've um, I've obviously been in different kinds of Ashkenazi synagogues. Um, and this is something totally unique. Um, and, and the building is beautiful, and the tefillah is beautiful, and the communities I remember it is very is very nice and welcoming. Um, oh, they're very, very. Nice. So very, it's it's a wonderful very, experience, um, and recommend anyone who's in Jerusalem uh, and has a chance to stop by uh, should do so. Definitely. Actually, there's a Hanukkah connection. As long as we're, like, <laughs> I'll give it the segue. Way. I'll make the segue for oh, you. Yeah, there you go. Um, the the um, Yehuda Maccabee is not really part of the Hanukkah story, so I can whatever. Um, Yudah Maccabee, one of the reasons why he was able to um, actually win, uh, or at least be able to fight them to fight the Greeks to a draw before actually he was defeated uh, um, later on, was um, he realized that the, he realized the rule that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, in the late second, at late third century BC, he, the um, the Romans had beat the, Carth- the Carthaginians with Hannibal and the elephants and all this other stuff. So now they had basically conquered the West. And they were moving, and they were looking east. And the the next the next major empire for the Pickings was in fact Antiochus and the Seleucids. And they had already the Romans had already tried, um, basically uh, announced that they were controlling Egypt, and they had taken off bitten off part of Asia Minor, which was uh, part of the uh, Greek Empire. And so basically, Yehuda sent a um, diplomatic mission to Rome, and said, "Look, it, are we have a common enemy?" So we'll help you. You'll help us. We'll weaken them by running a guerrilla campaign in Judea. We need you to move forces to in Greece and Western Asia Minor to have to force Antiochus to move forces to meet them, which weakens his efforts here in Judea, and which is what happened at the end. And um, this Book of Maccabees has the text of the um, uh, what shall we call it? The um, Treaty of Mutual Defense uh, between the Republic of Rome. And the whatever so it wasn't Jewish Commonwealth yet, but the, and Judah the Maccabee, uh, it's when you read it's a little bit silly. I mean, or a little bit strange. The Romans say that you'll come and help us when we need help. And the Romans say, we need help, and uh, <laughs> and the, and the Jews say when we need help, you'll come help us. Uh, but it was supposed to be forever and ever, and 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 they they exchanged uh, gilded uh, tablets. So they're going to be put up about how the Romans and the uh, Jews are going to love each other forever and ever. Uh, we know that that didn't end. Well, hold on, hold on. Uh, if, if let's take a step back here, if you, if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, so, uh, you know, because this is, we want to take a step back before we jump into the history here. Okay, right. So, okay. so anyway. starting, starting. Anyways, this, that's how the Jews got to Italy. That's how the Jews that's got to Rome. Jews that's got it. to Italy. Okay. The diplomatic mission. The diplomatic mission became the the kernel of the Roman Jewish community, which exists to this day. I've actually never awesome. heard that before. Um, so it's fascinating. So this this week we're going to start what is certainly outside of the Jewish community is one of the most well-known Jewish holidays, even, even if it's not that significant of a religious holiday. And we'll talk about all this in a second. And, and what do we do? We get together for eight days 
We light candles, right? We have a Chanukiah. Everyone mistakenly calls it a menorah, but it's a Chanukiah. We light candles. We say some blessings. We sing some songs. We eat. We play food. with silly tops. We we spin little tops called dreidels. Which is a Yiddish word. Right? And, and it's a time for families to get together. Um, it's, it's one of the most celebrated Jewish holidays uh, in Israel. I believe well over 90% of Israelis participate in candle lighting um, at least on, on one of the days, if not more. And even, you know, in the, in the uh, diaspora, especially like we talk about the American Jewish community that tends to be less observant of tradition than, than we are here. Um, it is widely, widely celebrate. Uh, I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but a, a great majority of American Jews um, light candles, um, you know, participate in it uh, to some extent or another. So it's a very popular Jewish holiday. And generally what's the story we tell ourselves, right? We have the, the miracle of the uh, oil and the rededication of the temple lasting for eight days. And some people go a little bit further and remember that there's also the miracle of the military victory. And these are kind of the military victory over the Greek empire and the band, the few beat the many and the kind of two different stories that we tell ourselves. So we wanted to bring its power in Israel is because of the fact that the uh, the Zionist movement. So we want, we wanted to bring an expert, a real expert on Jewish history. uh, Who's also an expert on, Jewish text and Jewish law. I'm just an all-around expert kind of guy. Right. Um, <laughs> and we want. Dude, he's in. A, he's sitting in a room ensconced in books. <laughs> it's a Listen, I've been on five continents in this room in the past. In the past, <laughs> clearly an expert. So, so you know something that I'm, we hide, I'm hide, actually hiding my violin. That's the thing I'm trying to. Right, right. Just a secret. Brain. You pull one of those oh, books off the wall. It opens up a secret room in the back. The whole closet. It was. Oh, yeah, I wish. I wish. Well, you know what it is. Yeah, it's really. Everybody really thinks that in there, in the middle of their three-room apartment, is a five-room apartment waiting to be born. But we have to figure out how to do it. <laughs> so true. So, I mean, one of the things we like to do on this show, uh, and something I like to do personally, the way I connect to Jewish holidays, is through history. Uh, I think you do too. You know, we both love exploring Jewish history, and, and for me, as someone who is observant, I still like to learn what actually happened in Jewish history, what Jewish text actually says, and and then kind of also explore the differences between that. And what it is we do today, and what Jews have done throughout history, and uh, so uh, Rabbi Professor um, Wolf, <laughs> do, do you like to go by Rabbi or Professor? What's uh, Jeffrey? Jeffrey. That's <laughs> so let's 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 start with a jump back into history. Um, okay. Let's exp- let's talk about the historical time period at, during the Hanukkah period. What time are we talking about? Who's who? Who are the players? Who set, are the actors? Set the stage for us, if you will. Exactly. So really what we're talking about is like this. It's, it's um, as with everything else, I mean, Israel sits in the middle of, uh, at the media, at the media, at the it meets, is where Asia and, and Africa meets. And it also has history. So the story of Hanukkah is very much a story about superpower politics. And it's a story about Jewish politics and where the two, and where the two come together. The um, if to set the, if you want to set the scene um, in terms of Jewish population, there are three major Jewish um, centers in the world. We're talking, let's say, let's let's start the story around the year 200 212 BCE. BC, okay, right? so 200 212 BC. We're talking 2200 okay. years ago. There are two major, there are two major, Jew, three major Jewish communities. One's in Egypt, and one is in Babylonia, uh, today modern day Iraq, and the other one is um, scattered throughout. Uh, what we call Eretz Israel writ um, large, because that includes southern Syria as well. All of those Jewish communities are living under the 
rule of one of two um, Hel <clears throat> Hellenist kings. Okay, Alexander the Great in the uh, in the late in the late fourth century comes. He conquers the Persian Empire. He sets up the largest empire the world had ever seen before that, uh, which goes all the way to Af Af Afghanistan. Balkh, um, what's it called? Kabul was founded actually by Alexander the, uh, Alexander the Great. He gets all the way to the Indian border. Um, and his idea is, among, among other things, his, uh, his uh, private tutor was a guy named Aristotle. So he was in the, he was, you know, he slept them along. Actually, in, in, a, in the very bad movie about Alexander, um, I think Peter O'Toole in typical fashion plays Aristotle because whenever they need somebody with a British accent to play somebody significant from the ancient period, they always get, um, they always get, uh, used to get Peter O'Toole along the lines of the rule that Romans spoke with British accent. If you're aware of, uh, you've seen those kind of movies. Anyways, um, Alexander felt that he was also, he was on both a, um, a uh, military and a, uh, as well as a cultural mission. Uh, the military mission was to make an empire. The cultural mission was to try to make a fusion of Eastern civilization, all Eastern civilizations, and Eastern includes the Egyptian and the Babylonian and the, and the, and the Persian and so on, with the best that Greek had to, Greece had to offer. That merger of East and West is called Hellenism. So it's not really Greek. It's more, it's more a syncretistic kind of thing in which all these all of these uh, all of these, um, all of these things come together. Where, wherein the the Hellenist piece has a uh, the Greek piece has a um, has a has a dominant um, has a dominant thing. It's part of this feeling of I have this great civilization. I want to spread it. Okay. Uh, there's an unstate and and this then the 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 attempt to bring things like the polis and the gymnasium and education and, so, and science and stuff like that to all over the world is primarily um, it's not a religious issue it's more a cultural issue it's more a governmental issue um, but there is this unstated kind of uh, kind of sense that uh, we represent enlightenment we represent uh, progress and you should get with the program. You don't really, you know, when, when you have a, we have a, a, that kind of a conquest and, and the, and, and the same, and, and the people who are conquered, who conquered you seem to be the, sorry, showing the way to, um, to the new world. Um, it's sort of understood that you're going to want to, you're going to want to make it with the conquerors. You're going to want to try to be like them. So you can, you can make it too. Would you say this is kind of like uh, how we would look at maybe American culture today or British? Oh no, question. Uh, now, I, I was. I, you're ahead. You're ahead of me because <laughs> there's there are there are definitely uh, there is. Look, you can't always. It's very difficult to um, to make absolute parallels, but yeah, there's lots of there's lots of parallels in terms of the dynamic. Um, now. One of the things about um, Hellenism and about paganism in general, which I should already mention at the outset, is the fact it is incredibly uh, tolerant. Uh, the defi by definition, pagans are tolerant. They are syncretistic in the sense that they're open to taking influences from all over the place. Because sure. let's start with the religious position. The minute you have more than one God, like it doesn't matter how many more you're gonna have. Right. <laughs> 
Okay. Like if you got two already, it's like I could have five, I could have 10. And part of the, there was sort of like a, a sort of like an, I'm dating myself. Do you know who Emily Post was? Uh, okay. Emily Post was, it was uh, who does, uh, I don't know, who does, uh, Dear Abby, I'm, I'm really dating myself. Whoever does like the etiquette page, right? Oh, I, know, the etiquette. Abby. I remember Dear Abby. Dear Abby, Dear Abby, Abby just, Ann Landers. Ann Landers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So if you were to ask Ann Landers, like, what's the etiquette in terms of going to visit somebody and having them come visit you? So she would tell you that when you go to their house, you have to worship their gods. And when they come to your house, they'll worship your gods. And like, that's understood. Everybody was cool with that because listen, it's the difference. Yeah, it's like, it's oh, this it's God, my God, this God. And not only that, but it's almost natural since everybody more or less, all gods more or less, I mean, there's a limit to how many powers there are in the world that you can have gods for. So it's almost understood that, that, you know, we, that they've come to the understanding that, well, you know, the truth of the matter is the sun god, whether we call him, whether we call him Apollo, or we call him Osiris, or we call him Ra, or we call him, uh, or we call him, or whatever it is. I prefer um, they're all the same. It's all the same under the same, uh, whatever. We're all together and we can all worship all the gods. So it's a very, very tolerant, um, it's, a, it's a very tolerant system. Uh, and as a result, so it, was, it wasn't that hard for the average person to um for the average person to uh, to get into it i'm not saying it, by and large it was the um it was the upper classes and all all through these this empire that um they were attracted to it but uh you know slowly but surely there was sort of like a patina of greekness or hellenism that sort of like filtered down in all kinds of different places now, now are, are the jews at this time uh, also attracted to the to the um polytheistic aspect of okay, it so that so let's so let's take it one step further so after after alexander dies in 322 bce uh his his empire gets divided in three parts but for our purposes two uh egypt and the land of israel are assigned to one of his uh, generals named ptolemy um and it's very easy to remember the names of the kings of egypt after that because every single one of them was named ptolemy uh, then you have to get oh, the numbers right. No, they got in, in English is spelled with a P. With a P. Yeah. P T O. Why do you spell night N I G H T? Uh, I mean, I, this is old English. If one of the three of us knows the answer, German. it's going to be you. <laughs> what? If one of the three of us knows the answer to that, it's going to be you. <laughs> oh, it's because German. It's, it's German. It's not. Okay. And the, the, the truth of me, it's from it's it's from it's probably from the Indo-European. There's there's an incredibly long and very boring podcast called the History of the English Language. I thought it was going to be like really interesting, but it it, it was it's deadly. But one th one of the takeaways is that ultimately it's, everything comes from Indo-European as far as English is concerned. Anyways, the um, so that Ptolemy and then the rest, which is basically Syria and Iraq and Iran today and everything else, that went to went to his other general whose name was Seleucus. So we talk about the Seleucid dynasty, and you had the Ptolemyan dynasty. In the first wave, um, the Ptolemies uh, ruled Eretz Israel. They were fairly, um, they weren't very aggressive in terms of, uh, they were very tolerant in terms of the Jews. But autumn, almost automatically, there were Jews who, you know, they wanted to make it with uh, the new rulers. And, um, and, uh, and they were attracted to not a few elements of Greek literature and lore and philosophy and architecture and stuff like that get with the program we want to be modern basically um and um over that over say say from 322 to 212 bc so over a period of like i'm 100 a little bit more over 100 years 
Um, slowly but surely, there's a process of moderate Hellenization that goes on in Judea. This is not this story, by the way, has little to do with Egypt and nothing to do with with the Jews in Babylonia. This is a, really an Eretz Israel story. Over time, how many Jews, by the way, are in Eretz Israel. I, I'm not going to play that. I, I, historical demography is, without a doubt, one of the most dangerous, oh. one of the most dangerous uh, things a guy can go into. Um, historic, we uh, no way of knowing. No way of knowing. There's even I just I just read today. I was I was looking at uh, numbers of estimates um, for how big Yehuda the Maccabees army was, and they, they even got a clue. I mean, they've got a estimate, but nothing serious. So never mind how many people they were. What? More than two. <laughs> More than two. Anyways, the um, in any case, so during this sort of quiet time, um, the pattern de- a pattern develops. Um, we're in the upper class of Jews in Jerusalem and uh, in other cities uh, is attracted to uh, Greek ways. They want to make it. They want to be. They want to be. Uh, they want to be accepted. They want power. They want to be recognized. They want to get close to the uh, to the government, and um, and uh, some of them are actually quite uh, quite um, quite radical. Quite radical. Radical. What do you mean by radical? Yeah. What do you mean? To the extent that well, I'll read. I'm going to read you a passage from the Book of Maccabees in a second. Okay. Um, I, I mean, this is this is there's a lot of there's a lot of really Byzantine politics going, on, which I'm going to skip. So that's one group. Byzantine. That's a different time period. I know. I know. But it's usually a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a synonym for uh, intricate back and forth. For convoluted. Yeah. Right. Very convoluted. I mean, it, it's, it's Jewish politics. It's Jewish politics. You know, it's like Isaiah Berlin once said that Jews like everybody else only more so. So <laughs> Jewish politics here, <laughs> like everybody else, say more so. Okay. So that's one you group. Go on. Hold, hold on. A minute. Before you go on, I'll just mm-hmm. say to our live listeners, those who are engaged, if you have any questions that you want to leave on the uh, Facebook page, you're welcome to do that. And I'm keeping an eye on it. And we will uh, try to insert them and ask our guest uh, these questions. So, okay. So that's one group. There is another group which absolutely wants nothing to do with this new civilization, which is rooted in idolatry and paganism. They can't make the distinction. They become, they morph later into a group called the Hasidim. Because at the end of the day, the enemy of Judaism from day one was paganism. Whether it's a matter of polytheism, whether it's, and everything that came from that. So they were absolutely allergic to that. So we have two extreme groups. Um, it's not surprising that part of this is many of these people actually lived in what we call in Israel, the, per- the periphery, the peripheria. They didn't, it's not, it's not, it's not a coincidence that, that the Maccabees themselves came from Modi'in, which was out, it wasn't a big city, that it was just a little village out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and then in the middle is the average guy, even in the cities who, you know, there's nice stuff here. They call they people call them and they, and they give themselves Greek names. They're sort of like becoming sort of like posing as sophisticates and and they, what's wrong with using the architecture? You know, there's sort of a lot in the, a lot of moderates in the middle. It's like people in Tel Aviv that name their kids Com and Sean. No, those are the. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm saying it's yeah. like today. Where... Okay. So, so really, so really, I mean, on the spectrum, but really can divide the community, the population into three parts. In two twelve, the Seleucids conquer Eretz Yisrael. Um, Antiochus the third. Um, Antiochus the third 
um, conquers uh, Eretz Israel, makes it part of the Seleucid Empire, Seleucid Empire, and he was also pretty, you know, he was pretty chill. I mean, he, he there was no, there really, he was considered to be a, a very moderate and very benign king. His son, however, Antiochus IV, who called himself Epiphanes, the great one, and everybody else called him, before he was even enthroned, apparently, he was called Epimanus, the Meshugana, um, succeeded him. Now, Epiphanes, uh, Antiochus, this Antiochus was number one, a true believer. He was prof apparently profoundly devoted to a vision of a totally Hellenistic world in which progress and enlightenment just became the, it became, it characterized his entire empire, which at that point is huge. Now includes, now it includes Israel too. Number one. So he's a true believer. Number two, he apparently believed that if there could be one homogenous culture, which unites his entire empire, then that would be a way of consolidating his empire, which is now under pressure from the Romans, for example. So that's number, uh, number two. Uh, number three, um, his father had actually been defeated by the Romans and he wanted payback time. Mm. And um, in addition, in addition, he um, had, because he, when he lost to the Romans, the Romans insisted on this enormous tribute, which he didn't have. He had a terrible, terrible cash flow problem. And this opened up, among other things, uh, an opportunity to two near duels, both of whom were priests, both of whom were Kohanim, to uh, try to play him for their own benefit. One's name was Jason. Okay, his, by the way, apparently his grave is, is in Rechav. If you know Kever Yasson yeah. in Rechavia, that is apparently, his, well, it was his grave. He's not there anymore. Uh, it's on Rechav Harif. It's up in the side thing. Um, one was Jason. The other one was Menelaus. Menelaus, everybody knows. But the two of them were playing off Antiochus, or Antiochus was playing them, uh, against each other. Um, on the, um, um, each one was bribing, taking huge amounts of money and bribing him to make him uh, high priest. This is around the year 170. Okay. So, um, sorry to interrupt you for a second here. So yeah. we're after the destruction of the first temple? Oh yeah, this is way uh, after the destruction. Yeah. And, first, and, destruction of the first temple is 586 BC. 586 BC, and and has the second temple been built yet? Or? It was the five. The second temple was dedicated in 516. 516. So, okay, yeah, so, so we the have second, second temple has been standing for a very long time okay. already. Okay. okay. Um, in any case, I, I assume that everybody. That, okay, you're right. I should have started. Just want to make sure. No, I'm excited. <laughs> uh, anyways, so and 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 the, by the way, so when you, if you're the high priest, that means that you're you're in charge of the temple, but it also means you rule the country because the source of power is the temple. Uh, it's the focal point for Jews around the diaspora. It's it's that's what it is. In any case, they so they go back and forth, and they're deposed, and they're brought back, and so on and so forth. Each one has a party. Um, what's common to both of them is the fact, that, aside from the fact they're un, they're unprincipled, um, is the fact that Jason is a moderate to radical Hellenist. Menelaus is a Hellenist on steroids. And he wants to he wants to suck up to Antiochus, but he also, I think, in principle, believed that um, believed that it, that Jewish separateness, Jewish uniqueness was a bad thing. And apparently it's it's to it's to Menelaus and his party that the author of one of the major sources that we have of the story, which is the book of Maccabees, which was apparently written by somebody in the Maccabee party after the victory, 
Um, so you have to sort of take it with a grain of salt because it's obviously, um, it's obviously, it's obviously has has an angle, but still, it's considered to be essentially reliable historically. The first chapter, after discussing Alexander and just before Antiochus, says as follows: This is Maccabees one eleven to sixteen. In those days, there went out of Israel wicked men. And they persuaded many, saying, let us go and make a covenant with the heathens that are around about us. For since we departed from them, many evils have befallen us. And the word seemed good in their eyes. And some of the people determined to do this. And they went to the king and he gave them license to do after the ordinances of the heathens. And they built a place of exercise in Jerusalem, according to the laws of the nations. And they made themselves artificial foreskins and departed from holy covenant and joined themselves to the heathens and were so, sold to do evil. Now, this is a very, obviously a very prejudiced report. What are we talking artificial about? Artificial foreskins. Oh, oh, wait, this is okay. You don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so it's, it's, I mean, look at one of the problems with the book, the book was written in Hebrew, okay. then it was translated into Greek. And this is a translation. So what originally was, I'll tell you in a second. So first of all, you're talking about, let's, let's forget about the evil people, blah, blah, blah. These are principled people who say that Jewish uniqueness and Jewish separateness and Jewish particularism is bad. If we want to be part of modernity, if we want to be, I'm using the word, and I'm, I know that the word sounds somewhat uh, anachronistic, but I, I can show you places in the 14th century, they talk about that they're living in the modern age too. So it's it, modern is what's now. Right. Um, they, they, if we wanted God of modernity, if look at look at the amazing things the Greeks have achieved. This is after. Don't forget, this is after. Per, this is years. This is hundreds of years after Pericles, after Plato, after. I mean, all these people have already done their thing. Okay, so they see what this civilization is giving them. So we want to be part of that too. So let's be like covenant with the with the with the pagans means let's let's become part of the big world. Why do we want to sit in our little damp little corner of the world and be primitives? Um, was there was there an element of wanting to adopt the pagan religion as a part of that? Oh, so let me. So that's so so that's the question. Um, number one, um, number one. So, they, so so what they did was they got. Uh, Menelaus, um, Yasson actually first, and then Menelaus got permission to make Jerusalem into a polis, meaning that it would be structured like a normal Greek city with all of its institutions, the most important institution being a gymnasium. Now, the word, gym, uh, the word gymnasium means a place where you na exercise naked, and it was dedicated always to the gods, okay. and, and it, the, whole, the, whole Greek, the whole Greek culture, which is based on the adoration of the human body and the perfection of the human body. And and uh, there's a wonderful there's this wonderful book I I, I my my ish my I bought it from all my kids my uh, my my uh, my copy is was printed in 1970 okay so long as I've had it it's called Mythology by Edith Hamilton she has a um, she has a line here which is really really important for our purposes in which she says you can see the picture she says the Greeks made the gods in their own image. Wow. Okay, so they were, it's a lot of self-worship. And so you want to be beautiful and you want to have a perfect body and you want to work out and you're with all the gods. And they're also gorgeous because basically, basically they're the celebs of, uh, of their day. Um, it's not that odd that they used to make uh, statues of, of Greek gods and put the king's head on the Greek god because there is sort of like this back and forth. Um, anyways, the, um, so they put, so they installed that. Apparently that was... At least according to one opinion, um, when you're walking up Shah Ashbot, 
um, towards the Kotel, that's where it was, and which is right next to the, it's right next to the Temple Mount. And there were descriptions about how the priests would, the Hellenists and priests would do their thing in the in the Beit Hamikdash, and then they go and take their clothes off and 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 go and um, and 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 work out and compete in the pagan in the pagan things. So the ambiance is definitely pagan. Were they worshiping Zeus and the rest of them? Um, some of them will be open to it when Antiochus does his thing and and and, and issues his decrees. Others won't, but this is getting this is more blatantly Greek, more blatantly pagan than anything that had happened before. Let me, let and that's where, if I can, no, just like that's where the foreskins come in. Okay. Um, yeah, so what's in in, in the Greeks worship the body, so what Jews do to male children is barbaric. It's in fact the the Romans later considered it a form of castration. You can't harm the body. So it's so and and if you're going to go and Jews are going to go, they want to be like Greeks. So it's obvious who's Jewish, right? So they they developed an operation. I, I still can't understand. This is real mysterious nefesh. This is real dedication to do this. But I, I called mishichata orla. Mishichata orla is a form of plastic surgery where you take part of the what's left left where you take skin and you recreate a foreskin. So I don't know if they did this without. There was no anesthesia. There's no ether. So I don't know. How we they have did any it. plastic surgeons listening to the that podcast? Or that are um, there are people who do that today. I'm sure there are. There are Jews who do that today, and it was a consistent problem because the rabbis already hundreds of years later mentioned this. There's one. There's one line in Perkei Avot. If a person does that, he has no place in the world to come, because wow. it's not just a matter. Of, I want to be like the Greeks. By by undergoing this operation, you're basically saying I no longer I basically no longer want to have any part of the unique covenant between me and God because that's that's why it's called a bris because it's a it's a sign of the covenant. Um, what else do they have over here? Um, and, uh, and 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 so on. So this so this back and forth between especially with Menelaus makes things much more it makes it makes things much more. Uh, much more, uh, much more intense, and and generates opposition not just among the Hasidim, but among the moderate, the among the moderate saying they're willing to have a certain amount of Greek stuff, but they're basically they're ba- their fundamental loyalty is to their is to their is to their Jewishness. Um, Let me ask you a quick question here. Sure, if you're comparing the land of Israel during that time to our adjacent countries, whether it's mm-hmm. you know. Uh, Jordan or in Syria. There is no Jordan. There's a bunch of Arab tribes. Oh, okay. I'm saying of, of today. Actually, I shouldn't say that. The truth of the matter is in the Jordan Valley, on the other side of the Jordan, in the Jordan, there was actually a large Jewish community and they were actually very active Hellenizers. Right. So, so that actually is, is part of maybe the answer to my question. How on the Hellenized scale, you know, one being uh, completely not Hellenized, ten being you're basically in downtown Athens, where does Eretz Israel's place in comparison to our neighbors during those Very, days? Well, okay. In, uh, um, the other side of the Jordan, in terms of the upper class, is a ten. Rabat Amon, Amman Jordan, uh, became a polis. It was actually called Philadelphia. Right. Yes. Okay. Um, so the upper class and certainly the Jews, the Jewish upper classes, the, the, it was called the, the Tobiads, the Beit Tobia there, were leaders of the, um, uh, active leaders of the Hellenist uh, movement. 
um, they have a long history. They had a long history of opposing uh, Jewish particularism. When um, Nehemiah did his re- did his reforms, and he got re- and he made everybody d- divorced and Jewish wives, the major opposition to Nehemiah and Ezra, and the re- and the religious reformation actually was led by these guys, by the ancestors of these guys on the on, on the other side of the Jordan. So they've been they've been they've they they're, they're, they're nothing if not consistent. Um, Alexandria is a major. The Alexandria Jewish community is extremely uh, is extremely Hellenized. I mean, they're very Jewish, but they're extremely Hellenized. Do they have in, uh, in, in our neighboring countries? Do they have this kind of conflict? This 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 class? apparently not. There, it's interesting. I I, I don't, I'm not aware of. Um, I never went to into it in depth, but I never I'm not aware of that. Uh, somehow in Egypt they were able to pull it off better. Uh, maybe it wasn't so extreme. Maybe because they weren't, uh, there wasn't, it wasn't a matter of the temple in their face. I'm not sure. Um, I know that the problem of Jewish literacy in Alexandria, for example, was a problem. So they built a huge shul, for example, enormous, uh, enormous shul in Alexandria. They had a, uh, they, one of their great, one of their finest sons was Philo of Alexandria, who lived in the uh, first century uh, CE. Um, but it's not clear whether he knew Hebrew even though he was a great Jewish philosopher. His nephew, Tiberius Julius Alexander, one of the commanders, one, commanded one of the legions that destroyed Jerusalem. So you have to ask yourself, um, whatever. But you know, but that's like, you know what that's like? Everybody has members of the family that go here or go there or whatever. It's sort of like, um, there's, there, it's, it's like, you know, Moses, my, Moses Mendelssohn was like one of the great Jewish philosophers of the late 18th century, of the 18th century, right? And and Orthodox Jews love to say, but you know what happened to all of his children? They all converted. So I don't know what that achieves because you know you can't you're not you're not responsible for your children. And Abraham had Yishmael and Isaac had Esau. So it's not exactly uh, you, you can't really control what your children do. Anyway, anyways, yeah. but kids are let's we're coming up we're coming up finally to this to the story. Um uh, this back, this in the middle of all this back and forth between Menelaus and Jason, and the community is getting more and more, and the internal dynamic getting more heated. Um, Antiochus decides that he's going to um, conquer Egypt. He wants to. He wants to get his. He wants to get his honor back. So he goes into Egypt and he conquers Egypt. Basically, he defeats the Egyptian king, Ptolemy, another one of the Ptolemies, and um, at that point. At that point, the Romans step in. Egypt was the major source of grain for the city of Rome. Hmm. And Rome had already put Egypt under its sort of protection. And the Romans came, a Roman legate came to Antiochus, according to the story, said, the Roman Senate said, get the hell out of Egypt. And Antiochus said, no. And the Roman legate, according to the story, took a um, took a staff, drew a circle around Antiochus, and said, "You have until you leave the circle to get the hell out of Egypt. And if you don't, you'll be sorry." And since Antiochus realized he couldn't beat the Romans, he beat a retreat, and he was humiliated, and he was angry. Meanwhile, the rumor got to Jerusalem that not only had Antiochus been defeated. Or had been humiliated, he was dead. So <laughs> there were riots against Menelaus, and <laughs> they threw out all of his people. And and Antiochus hears this, and he, he gets to here's here's this gets Jerusalem. He slaughters Jews. He ransacks the temple. He takes all the money he can get from the temple, and 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 desecrate and desecrates the temple. He said, "That's it. That's this is, it." This is on his way back to Syria. 
This is on its way back to Syria. And at that point, it's interesting. It's not clear whether this was Menelaus's idea or whether it was his idea. Um, but he comes up, that's when he comes up in 168 with his idea for the, uh, for the decrees. Uh, he's mad, he's humiliated, he's had it with the Jews, and he wants to advance Hellenism, and the only ones who are fighting him are these Jews here. Uh, he wants his guy in charge. Menelaus plays on all of his, all of the, you know, the, all, all, every, every, on every single nerve that he, pro-Hellenistic nerve in his body. Um, and so he comes up with these, uh, with these decrees. He's going he's gonna to stop the Jewish religion, which is the opposite of everything that he believes in. It's an amazing thing. This is the first anti-religious persecution in recorded history. Of any religion or Jewish? Of any, because no, because pagans don't need to persecute. Right, right. There's no reason for it. If I conquer you, I'll let you have your gods. You worship my gods. No, it's the same thing I said before. It makes no difference. What's the difference? Here, it's an either or, because there's one god or many gods. And he said, that's it, finished. And he, I'm sure he was horrified by circumcision, as it is. Um, I, I may be projecting, but the, the only other pagan um, anti-Jewish uh, persecution would happen a few hundred years later under Hadrian, who was very, in this regard, very similar to Antiochus. And in, in fact, a lot of the stories that we tell about uh, Hadrian actually go back to the story of Antiochus and the in the in Jewish memory sort of like the two get the two get merged the story for example of the story of Hannah and her and and her um, and her seven sons which everybody knows uh, her name wasn't Hannah really it was Miriam Batanchum but let's not uh, or Haisha uh, the woman as it's in one of the sources apparently goes back to Antiochus not to Hadrian even though the rabbis remember it as a uh, as Hadrian um, so he puts out these so so he puts out, so he puts out together these um, let me. I have the list of the Gazeros uh, here. Hold on a second. So, so while, while you're looking at the sheet, I just want to recap, kind of uh, for our listeners and for myself, what's uh, going on here. So we are in the year. What year? One sixty-eight. One sixty-eight BC. Okay, there are two competing remnants of the Greek Empire, two Hellenistic empires. One based in Syria, the Seleucids. One based in Egypt. Egypt, the Ptolemies. I pronounce the P. And uh, don't pronounce the P. Man. I, I pronounce the P. Silent P. Silent P. And uh, the Seleucids try to conquer the Ptolemies. The Romans say, uh-uh. He goes back and then with... Humiliated. Him, takes it out on the Jews. And he takes his rage out on the Jews who are... The first people he meets. Who are the who first people off. he meets. But they're also celebrating that he died, though he didn't. Oh, uh, okay. So that's part of it, too. Right. So they're right. celebrating the fake news. Right? Fake news. We talked about fake Basically, news. Yeah. Okay. So now... Understand. So he decides he's good. That's he says that's it. I'm putting Menelaus in charge. He's going to be the one that's going to he's going to rule the country, and I'm just going to this is it. So apparent. So the um, so the beginning of the winter of 167, you have the following uh, the following edicts. Number one, no more worship of the one God in the temple. Two, a demand that the Sabbath and the holidays be desecrated. Uh oh, that the um, that on the site of the temple. Um, altars be put up for um, altars be put up for um, for uh, the worship of Greek. Well, it's not clear either Greek gods or one of these sort of like syncretic gods. You know, it might have been Baal dressed like Zeus, something like that. Um, the only the only the only things that can be um, offered up in the temple are um, are pig, 
And by the way, that was what you offered. You either offered goats or pigs. One of the um, one of the one of the uh, for example, one of the um, signs that archaeologists find in Israel, for example, if you want to know whether an altar was a Jewish altar or an Israelite altar or not, is what kind of bones do you find? Canaanite altars are it's all pig bones, and uh, and and Jewish and Israelite Jewish altars are are, are kosher animals. What else? Um, Jews must uh, eat non-kosher food. Jews are not allowed to set to circumcise anymore. And anybody who 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 obeys any of the laws of the Torah will be killed. That's the uh, so that's uh, so that so that's pretty heavy. Good, yeah. That's and Menelaus and Menelaus. Wow, and Menelaus and Menelaus, who apparently was one of the people that came up with some of these ideas. It's interesting. There's a I, when I, I I was not aware of this that that there were some scholars who think that actually Antiochus didn't come up with this whole list. It was actually the really radical Hellenists who came up with Jewish Hellenists. Reminded me of a theory that was posed um, uh, in the American Historical Review about 20 years ago that suggested that the expulsion from Spain was not planned by Ferdinand and Isabella, but by Jews who had converted to Christianity and who were embarrassed by the continued existence of Jews in Spain. That's so, interesting, because yeah, it would make you think, uh, how would a Seleucid emperor understand all of these rules of Judaism? Today? Right, right. But you just have to tell them enough to say that, all I have to say is enough, they're not worshiping our gods. They, they, they castrate themselves. They, they, they mar their children. And, uh, and basically their, their Torah is the thing which is preventing them from becoming part, getting with the program. So, I mean, you, you don't need more than that either. So anyways, so then they go, so that's, it's against that background of those, uh, of those decrees that the temple is desecrated um, from a Jewish point of view. On the 25th of Kislev, 167, 167. Okay. In other words, in other words, 168, rather, I'm sorry. And what's the 25th, 25th of Kislev, 168 is when the temple gets, gets, gets desecrated. And it's against that background that you have the story now of, of, of Greek officers going out and setting up altars and forcing people to eat pig. And in response to the prohibition against uh, circumcision and the uh, ob obligating Jews, forcing, taking elderly Jews, I mean, distinguished Jews, and forcing them to eat pork and stuff like that um you have another new uh phenomenon which is the world had never seen martyrdom hmm. the idea that you die rather than give up your principles rather than rather than betray the belief in the way the belief in the one god in the torah it never existed this was a brand new this was a brand new uh thing which apparently came from the bottom up it was not regulated because who thought that such a thing would would would, would be necessary? Yeah. Um, well, we know all this stuff about that. We know that that uh, that you there were three reasons of which you're martyred for changing a religion. That's 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 three hundred years, four hundred years in the future. This is coming up from the top. Women, women, we know women took a very large view. Uh, by the way, the opposition was was a significant population of women who were in charge. The 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 the, the authors of Maccabees tell stories about women who 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 endangered their lives to be able to make sure that their, their children would be circumcised. They would do it publicly in order to attract attention to and to be to offer themselves. They were punished, thrown off in one case. Horrible, I'm not going to go into the details, but horrible things would happen to them. Um, stories about about uh, of people who martyred themselves. They'd rather die than, than violate any of the laws of the Torah, including eating non-kosher food, which, by, by the way, according to later Jewish law, is you, if somebody tells you, eat a piece of pork, so you say, can I have some salt, please? And, um, or whatever you eat pork with. Um, 
and, and but there was a really a, a tremendous upsurge. On the other hand, there were I'm sure there were there were lots of Jews that were you know closer on the extreme end of the on the Hellenistic scale. Said you know all right, fine, that's what it is. But there were enough that when um, that when a Jew went and offered to Zeus in Modi'in, um, and now we think that by the way that the that the that the town of Modi'in today is actually more or less in the area where uh, Modi'in the original Modi'in was. Um, Matityahu goes up, kills the Jew who decides to worship Zeus. There were enough people to uh, start to start a rebellion, um, which was really a, a guerrilla war, um, but, I, but enjoyed enough support from the people because even even those who weren't Hasidim, even those who were not uh, who were moderate Hellenists, because there's lots of lots of these guys have Greek names. I mean, so they're obviously not going to be that uh, they're not going to be that uh, they get opposed. Uh, this was it. I mean, they, you, you want to have up to here, that's fine. But this was hit them where they lived, and that's where the support, both active and passive, for Matityahu and later Yudha Maccabee, uh, Maccabee came from. We talk about the Maccabees, right? We talk about the Maccabees. Who are Maccabees, Matityahu? Um, I think you hear this more in Israel than you do uh, maybe in the States. But uh, so, so tell us what, about... Maccabees? No, about about uh, Matityahu and so the Maccabees. So the so that's so part of this part of this story is actually an intra Kohen story because the Mac not all, not all just because you were a Kohen didn't mean you had you had, had power you were part of the power structure in the temple. Um, there were various family various dynastic families. I'm coming with all the names now. Uh, various dynastic families which um, at different times ran the temple. And those who were Kohanim, but who weren't part of the power structure, uh, you know, so they got their priestly gifts and stuff like that, and uh, they taught or whatever it was they did. The Maccabees were from a non-power structure, um, or the Hasmoneans, I should say, non-power structured, uh, a Kohen, a priestly family that were not part of the power structure. Uh, that's why Yudah could later become king. You said Hasmoneans, or as we say in Hebrew, Hashmonaim. Hashmonaim. That's the family name. The family name is Hashmonaim. Hashmonaim. Maccabee is Yudah Maccabee. What does it come from? Does it mean hammer? Does it, there's all kinds of different uh, different theories. It does not mean Mikamocha Be'elim Hashem, even though that's what they uh, they like to say. It probably means a hammer. I mean, that's the pretty, that's that's kind of the kind of thing you would it was like would a call a successful guerrilla, you know, guerrilla warrior. So anyway, so they, let's go ahead. Um, so, the, so, what, so to continue the story, so that takes a year. It takes a year and Yehuda manages to run a really brilliant um, guerrilla, a series of guerrilla, guerrilla, uh, a guerrilla campaign. He defeats a number of major um, Seleucid armies. How, how, and, sorry to interrupt you. Who, who is he that he knows how to do this? That's it. We don't know. Just some people, some people have it just. He's a very, so it, chances are he's probably. Oliver Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell was, uh, you know, was a politician. He was a local uh, leader and he led the, led the parliamentary armies and defeated the uh, Cavaliers and, 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 and executed the King of England. So he's, he's have, a charismatic guy that happens to be in the right place at the right time to, you know. And a religious person would say that it was Providence. Right. So, right. yeah. Yeah. The family, but the, apparently the family knew how to, I mean, it's hard to know. I, I, I don't know of any other explanation. All the brothers had, all the brothers had um, somehow sort of military 
you know, sort of military savvy, um, except for, you know, Elazar who decided he was going to shish kebab the elephant, but that's, you know. Wait, well, what? Who shish kebab the elephant? Well, you know, so there were five brothers. There was Yehuda, and then Yohanan, and then there was Yonatan, and there was Shimon, and there was Elazar. And these are the so, sons of Matityahu. The, and the father was Matityahu. There were five sons, and Matityahu was the father. The father was, he was an old man. He died not long after the beginning of the rebellion. Yuda led the first stage of the revolt. Um, after the after the dedication of the temple, he uh, he was defeated by the Greeks by the by the by the Syrians and uh, died in uh, died in battle. It was taken. His place was taken over by um, his brother Yonatan, who um, advanced the cause of Jewish independence. And finally, it was this, the last the youngest brother Shimon, who ultimately becomes uh, sort of king and, and attains a total Judean independence in the year 140. Uh, the two other brothers, Yochanan, some problematic what, what happened to him, and Lazar, according to one of the stories, um, in one of the battles, sorry, very big, the, the Greeks, the, the Syria, the, you know, used elephants. He sees this big fancy elephant, and he's going to, he thinks the king's on the elephant, so he goes and he shish kebabs the elephant, and the elephant crushes him. According to some traditions, that's why I live in I live in Etzion, and one of the local one of the local uh, towns is called Elazar. Because according to one tradition, it's probably not correct, but one of the one tradition that's where Elazar fell. That's where he. Um, that's where that's the where, elephant fell on him. Or that they were with the three. He, he they found the stones. Anyway, so he was not the most military. I mean, that was he. They, he had less military <laughs> military savvy. Um, anyway, so they come in. They, they so after a series of victories in in uh, 167 uh, in Kislev 167, the um, they um, they conquer Jerusalem. They don't conquer all of Jerusalem. There is a the the in order to control the temple and to control, control Jerusalem, the um, the the um, Syrians had built a huge um, fortress which overlooked the entire lower city. Which we would call the area, um, actually the area of the Kotel and 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 going down into Ir David, that whole area. Uh, there was some question for a long time as to where it was. Now they think it was right next to Ir David. There's this huge parking lot that they discovered right. that there was there, and they excavated it and they found this big thing, and they think that's where it was. That was actually so that was that was held by the Greeks for a very long time. Uh, but the rest of the rest of the city was was conquered by you by Yehuda, and Yehuda set to um, rededicating the temple. And then, so there is in that at that point, I'll read you again the passage. Um, by, by the way, maybe uh, after this, why isn't the Book of Maccabees part of the Tanakh, part of the Bible? Okay, let me. Um, uh, all right. So the Book of Maccabees is not part of the Bible, probably most likely because um, the rabbi said a. Um, well, it's not most likely. The accept question is when did prophecy end? When did inspired writing end? So prophecy ended according to rabbinic tradition with in the fifth century with the death of the last three prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. The according to the way the rabbis dated the books, um, no book was written. Uh, no inspired book, no book was written with with the Holy Spirit, as uh, as I say, Baruch HaKodesh, after the fifth century as well. So the fifth century, those are four hundreds BCE, is the year is the time that, according to rabbinic chronology, um, sort of in, in divine inspiration and stuff like that ends. Um, there were tons and tons of books that were writing that were floating around um, that. Um, that claimed to be written by prophets and stuff like that in this in this period, 
but the rabbis didn't. The rabbis sort of set the cutoff point as uh, as the fifth century. There are those who argue that the reason that the books of Maccabees were not included was because the rabbis lost, uh, so were, became less enthusiastic about the Maccabees, uh, the Asmoneans later, because Simon was the last brother, and his son, and his grandson, and, and descendants, they actually ironically became very um, became very Hellenized. Oops, they became oops. they wanted to be kings like all the other Greek kings in the in the world. Um, they joined the anti-oral law party called the Sadducees, uh, who were also miserable. They were miserable towards the population. They were elite, they were the elite that ran the temple, and and but they were also they're also heretical. They're the major enemies or the major rivals of the Pharisees throughout the Second Temple period. And the theory is that that's why the Book of Maccabees making fun, making, you know, praising the books of Maccabees, praising the Asmoneans is not something that that the rabbis thought. I'm there may be something to that. I'm I'm more I'm more convinced of the sort of uh, theological reason. Uh, and I'll tell you why. I don't think the rabbis had a mixed attitude towards uh, the Hasmoneans. They were did not like. Uh, Simon's children and descendants for the reasons that I mentioned. Um, but they, there were plenty of statements in rabbinic literature which have very positive things to say about, you know, the capture of Jerusalem and the, and the look at we, in, in the prayers that we, in the prayer that was inserted early in the regular liturgy, let's say three times a day during Hanukkah, there's no mention of, by the way, there's no mention of the, of the cruise of oil. It mentions the fact that they were terrible persecutions, and they and God sent us the Hashmonaim, and they went and, <clears throat> and they beat the and there was it was yeah Rabbi Miad Ma'atim, and there were few few the few overcome came the many, and they came and they and they dedicated the temple. That's a that's a straight out endorsement of of the Hasmoneans. So to say that that's the only reason is because they didn't like what happened later, I think is uh, is extremely superficial and uh, and uh, in general. When, when does the the story, I mean, let, let's kind of, um, for, first of all, kind of, you know, as we say, like order, order, order it in my head a little bit. Uh, okay. I, I forget my English sometimes. Um, if you, we all become if, illiterate in two languages. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, so, so we get our sources, our historical sources on Hanukkah. And on this story from the Book of Maccabees, the books there are four books of Maccabees. The ones that are most historically accurate are the first two. They're also the earliest one. The first one is the most Israel accurate. And in addition, we have the um, we have the, the whatever uh, we have the books of Josephus, Yosef right. uh, and Matityahu, in his history, uh, the antiquities of the Jews, which starts in the creation, goes all the way up to his time. Um, two hundred years later, but he's two hundred years later. But he's a, but he's a Hasmonean. He's a descendant of these guys. He is a descendant of the Hasmonean. He himself is part of the. He's a Cohen. And he's part of the Maccabee, the the Hasmonean family. Um, so again, look at again. Ancient historians are not are not modern historians. They have different angles. They write differently. But more or less, he's a major, major. He's but, a major source. So, in any of these texts, where and maybe you, you'll get to this soon, or you're planning on it. Where does this the the miracle of the oil and, and all okay? So let me get so let me get to that. So they come. So from what we know from 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 Maccabee from the book of Maccabees and from Josephus, on the twenty fifth of Kislev. In other words, a year later, they go in. Well, I'll read you what he says. 
And then Judah said to his brothers, this is chapter 4, verses 36 to 59. I'm not going to read all of this. Behold, our enemies are crushed. Let us go up to cleanse the sanctuary and dedicate it. So the army assembled. They went to Mount Zion. And from there, they saw the sanctuary desolate, the altar profaned, the gates burned, and they, and they cried, and they, and, they, and they rent their clothes. So they went and they cleaned the Beit, the Beit HaMikdash. They put up a new altar. They took the altar that had been desecrated because they put this big, uh, big uh, idol on top of it. And so on, they made a new they made a new idol. They said they and they burnt incense on the altar and they lighted lamps on the lampstand. And they brought and they made a new menorah according to um, according to uh, Josephus. They put in a new menorah um, and uh, and they made and made an eight day hall and they declared an eight day holiday. Um, why? Why it is? Okay, that's interesting. So that's the question. Some think that it's they when Solomon dedicated the temple, the first temple it was also an eight day holiday. So according to, what, to some opinions, that's where they got it. According to others, it's because they'd missed Sukkot that year. And Sukkot was a very important holiday. Sukkot is also eight days. So there was that this sort of imitation of Sukkot there. Um, the, um, the rabbi, the, the, the Josephus and the Mecca Maccabees do not mention the, um, the, uh, the story of the cruise of oil. One wouldn't expect it, the truth is. Um, okay, so, so so those who are skeptical will have be skeptical about a miracle. But even those who believe in a, in the miracle, there is no there there actually no there is good reasons that each author would not have put it in. Why? Because the author of the book of Maccabees was interested in one thing and one thing only: making the Maccabees look good, making the Hasmoneans look good. So for that purpose, uh, what you need to talk about is the fact that they did all this stuff and they redid it again the temple and uh -huh, and they lit, lit lit candles and it was eight days and that's it. Josephus is writing for a Greek audience, with the ultimate skeptics. Don't forget this: skepticism was a uh, was a major philosophical school. It was created in the world in the Greek world. Telling stories about miracles is the last thing that he's going to want to do to be able to impress Greeks. Um, the story of the cruise of oil um, is found in a post temple, uh, a post temple. Uh, no, I'm sorry, a post temple record. Um, in the Babylonian Talmud. It's not mentioned in, in the Jerusalem Talmud, interestingly, uh, but it's alluded to, it's alluded to in the Mishnah. It's alluded to in the Mishnah. And the, um, the record is that the, that, the, that, the, that the discussion about how you light the candles, okay? Mm -hmm. Discussion how you light the candles is recorded as a matter of debate between the house of Shammai and the house of Hillel. Right. Now that puts now that puts it back into that put into before the temple is destroyed, right? So it means that 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 this record of the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai is in the hundred years before, maybe fifty years before the temple is destroyed. How do you light the candles? So that's within not within living memory, but it's within historical memory of the events. Number one, number two, the entire debate is predicated, you know, would you start with eight and go down to one or go from one to eight is predicated on uh, predicated the idea of, of the story of the, of the miracle, right? So if you have a, one cruise of oil last eight days, then, yeah, okay, so you're going to start with eight and go to one. I mean, that, that's the whole, that's the whole deal. Now, there are those who will say that somebody later, there are those, there are, there are scholars who are skeptical, who in general don't accept miracle stories, and they and they say they'll say, well, they made it up, and then and, and they 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 whatever. But but 
from a from a from a responsibly historical point of view, if you accept the authenticity of the traditions, I, I'm I'm generally uh, I generally not just because I'm the Orthodox rabbi, but also because I have a profound um, I have a profound respect for uh, oral traditions. Um, oral traditions have a tendency to be preserved uh, in their essence over long periods of time, and um, and as a result, so if I have, I have, I personally, I'm always, uh, always willing to bet on the side of, uh, err on the side of caution. Um, the person who I mimic in that regard is actually a professor at Yale. So professor at Yale's name is Donald Kagan. Uh, he is a world's expert actually in Greek history. And he tells, and he says his fall, and he says his following, he wrote this in an article in Mimesis, I think. He wrote, he writes, he says, when he was a kid, he believed all the stories that he heard about Greece. When he was a grad student, uh, he didn't, he said, "I don't believe anything." He says, and as he went through his very, he was a strolling, he's a strolling professor. Yeah, that's like as high as you can go. That's like that's like being a member of the general staff. Uh, he says, as he's gone, time has gone on, and he's done more and more research. He says, "I absolutely will accept the veracity of all my sources unless absolutely impossible to accept them." So, in other words, unless he unless it's absolutely contradicted. He, he's willing to give credence to uh, ancient sources. And, uh, you know, if he can say that about Greek, uh, about the about Greek mythology and Greek sources, I'm willing to, to give the uh, benefit of the doubt to the, to the whatever. But it's certainly true. But, so, but even, let's do this in, um, let's do this more cautiously. Uh, even those who want to have their doubts about the story, it's patently clear that not long, within 150 years after the rededication of the temple, um, Jews thought that that's what happened, and that's why they should organize their lighting of the candles accordingly. It's strange. Does that make sense? It, it makes perfect sense, and at the same time, it doesn't make sense at all because it, it to somebody who's who's less inclined to believe that story, it seems like the historical record of what the Jews did in 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 at the time. The actual rededication of the temple and the story that preceded it, of the feeding of a, of a, of a, of a, of a military power, you know, right. who are we? We defeated military power. It is, to many, in and of itself, a miraculous series of events. Right. So I'll take it one step further. Let me ask you about the. Let me. So let me. Excuse me. I'm going to cut you off. Um, let's take the story and see what it symbolized. Okay. Um, the miracle of the of the oil was only seen by who? A couple of priests. Right. right. The people in who other were, words, right. We're so, going in there and lighting the oil. So what are we talking about? We're basically talking about what Nachmanides in the 13th century talks about a hidden miracle. What's the point of what basically what is the what and here we actually get to it to the question of starting of creation of Hanukkah. What's unique about Hanukkah? And not unlike not unlike Purim as well. The may and why were they why were they why were they holidays that the diaspora Dafka um, got into? Because all of the all of the holidays that are that are written in the Torah are basically Cecil B. DeMiller, George Lucas types holidays. They've got big events and big effects and and then all kinds of stuff and it's all out there and so on. The story of Purim can easily be easily be described as a coup. You had two parties. There was the Haman party and the Mordechai party. And the Mordechai party won. 
what's why why make a holiday because it's ba- because purim is based on the pre- on the premise that god is the author of history and he works behind the scenes the exact same lesson is the exact same assumption is what um is what uh validated the creation of a holiday uh, on hanukkah it's not just the it's not just the military victory on the contrary the military victory is an expression of the fact that god at the end is the author of history it's the same and and in purim together with hanukkah um become the become the ideology or the religious framework for jewish survival in the diaspora because in both cases you're talking about history the rules of history being violated to save the Jews. In one case, it's a physical, uh, in the case of Purim, it's a, you, 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 um, the Jews are saved from a phys- from physical destruction. And in the case of uh, Hanukkah, it's a spiritual destruction it's, that they're saved from. in the face of greater enemies who are trying to. Correct. Correct. So in the case, so, so here, um, and what's striking, by the way, it's, it's, it, that's, it brings us to something, an aspect of Hanukkah that people don't really pay attention to. Um, part of it because they don't read the Book of Maccabees. I strongly recommend, recommend reading the Book of Maccabees. I think I'm uh, it's available in English. The best edition in Hebrew um, was uh, put out by uh, Yad Ben Svi. You can get it with all kinds of commentaries. It's a wonderful book. And maybe we'll have Shavuot Sefer this year. <laughs> you can go buy it on a discount. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the striking things that comes up consistently in the book of Maccabees, in the first book anyways, is a spiritual hesitation, meaning that on a, a number of occasions, um, you find that the spiritual leadership, the religious leadership, which Mathathias and his guys, whoever they are, they're anonymous, and then the people who take over afterwards, they have to deal with unprecedented circumstance. So one unprecedented circumstance were the parameters of martyrdom. Um, in the early stages of the revolt, uh, we have a funny story. It's a very funny story not humorous, but odd, um, that there were Jews that were hiding in the hills of, uh, in, the, in, the de- in the Judean desert, which is what Jews do in caves. What Jews do? Kochba caves, for example. And, um, and, um, and Antiochus sends, or whoever's the local, the local Greek commander, sends an army to go get them. And they refuse to fight. The we're not going to desecrate the Sabbath. The Jews refuse to fight. Um. And, uh, and, they, and they're all slaughtered. At that point, Matityahu says, you know, if we, go, if we keep like this, we're not going to get anywhere. So it's mutter now. So he says, you're allowed to fight on Shabbat. Now, it's very odd. What? Jews never fought? On, this issue never came up before. I mean, it's very, it's very hard to know exactly what, what happened here. There have been Jewish soldiers since there have been Jews. Yeah, for, since day one. The whole, first of all, you have all the first temple time. Then you have Jews who were actually mercenaries in all kinds of different places. So the question of whether you can fight on Shabbat came up and it was clear that it was allowed. So what happened here? Uh, it's not a hundred percent clear. Um, it, the one, some people thought that maybe it was a question of these were civilians or maybe, maybe they were, it wasn't a regular normal war that maybe they should actually better to die the same way that their, their martyred friends had died. No, it's not a hundred percent clear, but what was clear was that, that this was an unprecedented question that they had to deal with. So that takes religious guts. It's not just a question of military guts. It takes religious guts because you're saying, I'm saying now that under this circumstances as well, you can desecrate the Sabbath, which is as, which is as heavy a deal then as it is now, maybe more. Uh, on the other hand, when they come 
to dedicate the temple. They do everything necessary to dedicate the temple, except for one thing. When they, when they come to take apart the altar, which had been defiled, they say, we don't know what to do with this. We don't know what to do with the stones. Can we use them? Can we, can we clean them? Whatever. So they said, you know what? We're going to, let's let them aside and we'll wait until a prophet comes and he'll tell us what to do with the, uh, with the stones. And by the way, it's interesting that um, that sort of hesitation not to know what to do with these stones because they're sacred, they're not sacred, and so on, is actually mentioned in the Mishnah. In a very early Mishnah, which describes the, 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 um, the, uh, describes the, 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 the entire structure of the temple, the la- and this is Masechet Midot chapter 1-6, you have a, a statement where it says, in the, in the northeast part of the temple complex, in the northern part of the temple mount, they put the stones which had been, uh, had been abominized. Or had been defiled by the grace. So, others, you have a confirmation of the story. Um, why you, you doing all this other stuff? What, what's with the prophet? The answer is that apparently they were really nervous about doing anything without divine intervention. The Jews then were not used to life, even though prophecy had ceased. They weren't used to life without a prophet. So they had to be able to, so those, any, any circumstance, anything came up that they could get away with not dealing with, they avoided. But more interestingly, I think more importantly, is the fact that those areas where they thought that they really had to take a stand and take a chance, because they don't have God telling them, yeah, this is good, no, this is bad. They, they were willing to have the, the moral and the spiritual fortitude to do that. Creating Hanukkah was part of that. Because don't forget, the difference between Purim and Hanukkah is Purim has a book which was accepted as being, which was accepted as being divinely inspired. Right. You're talking about the, the Megillah. The Megillah. This, I got nothing. But they're willing to take the chance. This is, if you're in a religious frame of mind, a guy, a person, I, I know that cynics like to say the rabbis make it up as they go along, but rabbis don't make it up as they go along. If they're genuinely, if they have religious integrity and they're sitting there thinking, you know, I've got to figure out what God wants. So that means exposing yourself. So when they didn't have to, and you see that they, they <laughs> you see that they didn't, they, if they could avoid it, they did. But when they, this was something they felt they really had to make a commitment and expose themselves and take a chance. So what you have here in, in, in as a result, the creation of Hanukkah is not just, a matter of the fact that we're celebrating something which looks like just a successful guerrilla revolt as something which God, which God wills. And it's the rededication of the temple and all this other stuff. It's also a question of, this is the holiday of the oral law, the holiday of religious responsibility in a world in which there's a prophecy and you have to take responsibility and do what you think is right. Whether you're right, even though you might turn out, you might end up be turning out to, you might turn out to be wrong because that's what the hour requires. And in that regard, it's a major step forward towards the advance of the oral law and Talmudic Judaism, which basically does that. That's, you know, that's the, uh, there's something very daring in the oral law as a result. And Hanukkah, therefore, becomes, uh, becomes an expression, uh, becomes an expression of that. So, so is this, a, so you're saying this is a unique, the, the, the institution of the holiday of Hanukkah more or less as we celebrate it or we, as, as, as Jews then began to celebrate was a bold step by the rabbis who instituted it. I think so. I th- that's how I read it. And, and around what time, maybe I missed this in the explanation, but around what time do we think 
Jews started celebrating Hanukkah in some version of it? Okay, so that's already that's an interesting question. Um, we don't have we don't have a lot uh, as opposed to Purim. We don't have, there's no tractate in the Mishnah that describes, that describes Hanukkah. You have a few pages in uh, the, what we know about Hanukkah in terms of the rabbinic literature is one, uh, is, an, is an en passant mention in the Mishnah, which is already after the temple is destroyed. Uh, what happens if you have a camel or an animal, I forget what kind of animal, and is walking through the street and it's got, it's got straw on its back and it, it gets, it get, and, and the straw goes and gets lit, it gets set on fire by a Hanukkah. So who pays for the, who pays for the straw? Um, and you have a few pages in the Talmud in, uh, in, in, in Shabbat. Uh, apropos, the Talmud in Shabbat talks about, talks about what, what kind of, what kind of candles you like for Shabbat. So they get into a discussion of Hanukkah. Um, it's hard to know. Just because the holiday existed didn't mean that everybody kept it. Doesn't mean that everybody uh, kept it the same way. Um, reports about who did what are mixed. Uh, I think it's fair to say, I mean, Josephus reports that lighting lighting menorah existed in his time. So it means that in the first century BC, uh, I mean, first century CE, it's already an established uh, fact. Did it reach it? Did it make it all the way to Egypt? Did it make it all the way to Babylonia? Did everybody do everything at the same time? Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It's it's it, it seems to be somewhat uh, somewhat uneven. But you don't expect it. Uh, you don't expect it otherwise. Things take time to um, things take time to uh, settle in and to um, and to um, and to and to be established. What, Interestingly, what there is there is a book called Megillat Ta'anit. It's probably the only piece of written oral law that actually dates from before the destruction of the temple which is a list of holidays that they used to keep in the time of the Second Temple, all of which um, Professor Vered Noam from Tel Aviv, last year's uh, Kalat Pras Yisrael, um, has noted almost all of them refer to, um, refer to victories of the Hashmonaim. And the rabbi said, look, it, there's no, after the temple was destroyed, there's no reason to remember all these holidays. So they are no longer uh, observed, except for two, Purim and Hanukkah are mentioned there. Wait, so wait, there are other holidays, what, that, that related to the... So was, once they started with Hanukkah, the Hashemonaim went, went on a roll. And they made holidays for every single victory that they had. Uh, and after uh, the destruction, there was like no reason to keep remembering these holidays. You know holidays. some of their names? Uh, there's Yom Nikanor, a major days Yom Nikanor. I've heard of that, yeah. Yom Nikanor was a day of the major victory over, the, over General Nikanor. Uh, it actually happened on Erev Purim. Uh, and um, and uh, and that was like a big deal, uh, but there's all kinds of others. The rabbis later wrote a um, sort of tried to understand what the what all these the holidays were, and they added um, they added sort of like a commentary to this book in which they relate the various holidays to uh, to fights between the Stukim and the Prushim, which is interesting because right. the later Hasmoneans became Sadducees and and against the Pharisees and stuff. But um, but so, the, the rabbi but the old, but the, what's important is that the two holidays that stuck are uh, Hanukkah and Purim, which means how deeply embedded they were, certainly in terms of uh, the Jews of Eretz Israel. What was going on in Egypt? It's hard to uh, it's hard to know. I'm, it's fairly clear that that it that um, that it, it that as far as Babylonian Jewry was concerned, Hanukkah also um, Hanukkah also was they became deeply embedded. But we don't have an it's. I, we there's just not enough material. There's just not enough information to be able to um, have any uh, have a clear idea.
So we know, I mean, we're assuming just by what's written in the Mishnah, um, which again, it comes around 200, 300. Uh, no, the Mishnah, the Mishnah is redacted between 200 and 212 CE. But it includes material that is really, really, really old. It's interesting. One of the um, one of the things that Dr. Professor Noam uh, does. She did this today, Duff, in a uh, there's a uh, there's a um, one among the many uh, Duff Yomi groups that have spouted on Facebook over the since January is a it, well actually this is older is a group called Yomi which is in Hebrew and it's a bunch of uh, it's a bunch of basically academics that are doing Duff Yomi and they share their expertise. Uh, in terms of Talmudic text, especially. So today she came up with a, uh, she mentioned something happened on, in yesterday's daf, which uh, she noted that many, many scholars would say, man, this is late, this is not, not authentic and so on. And she proves that in fact, it predates the destruction of the temple by at least 150 years, this one passage. Wow. So, you know, I, uh, I'm, 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 it's, who, right. Shammai, who are yeah. the beginning of the Mishnah, date. Hillel and Shammai live, before the Mishnah, they live, they, they, they are the last set of heads of the, of the Pharisees in the time of Herod. Hillel is a direct contemporary, exact contemporary of Herod. And that's, and that's clearly during the time period of Beit HaMikdash. And so, yeah. So, and, and you have to, and, and it's fair to do the following. If you have a, if, excuse me, if you have a, if you have a report, from say ten years after the destruction of the temple, of a long of a long, that during the, the, the Jerusalem when it was still standing, everybody kept everybody celebrated Hanukkah and that's an established holiday. So you can, it's fair to you know, extrapolate backwards. That you know at least 100, 150 years. So that that brings you up to the time of the Maccabees. So when when do we start? Um, you know. You said it's not clear when the other major communities of the time, Alexandria, Babylonia. Um, Babylonia, I think, was fairly quick. Uh, Alexandria, I don't know. I, I Truth is, I don't know enough about what was going on there. They were very, very, as I said, they were they were very Jewish, but very Hellenized. Very Hellenized. I mean, the, the and, but not in the sense, not in, not in the, not in the sort of aggressive Sure. Uh, Menelaus type. Yes, yes. They were they were culture. They were acculturated. Oh. I mean, one of the uh, let's put it this way. Um, one we were talking about demography a few minutes ago, and uh, now we're getting to, a lot of what we said has the contemporary implications. Many historians, it's it, okay. There were some who, who questioned this, but it's it's a it's pretty much a given or a consensus among historians that at the time of the destruction of the temple. The 10% of the free people in the Roman Empire were Jews, which would mean about 8 million Jews. Wow. If you add a million Jews in Babylonia, you get 9 million Jews. Okay, so now, now it's good you're sitting. In 1789, the world Jewish population was approximately 1.3 million Jews. 900,000 Ashkenazim, 400,000 uh, Mizrahi Jews. What happened? What happened? All the they go. What? Where'd they go? Assimilated. Right. And so when did they assimilate? So um, a friend of mine at NYU, Professor Larry Schiffman, um, is of the, was, he told me this the first time. He says, after the destruction of the temple, most Jews in the Roman Empire um, had become so assimilated, so, 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 so Hellenized, that when the temple was destroyed, their last tie to their Jewishness disappeared. Or maybe they saw in the destruction of the temple a sign. Or they were subject to Christian propaganda that uh, Jesus foresaw the destruction of the temple, and therefore they became Christians, whatever it is. 
More recently, there have been a series of art, two articles were published by two professors at Tel Aviv, uh, Doron Meisels and um, Aryeh Edry. Um, and they argue something even more worrisome in terms of Jewish um, sustainability. Is that the word? Sustainability, right? Yeah. Um, they note that outside of the areas that were under direct influence of the rabbis in Eretz Israel and Babylonia, Jews were fundamentally, I mean, fundamentally, they were massively Jewishly illiterate. Um, the Yerushalmi tells a funny story that Rabbi Meir was in Asia Minor somewhere. Uh, I mean, they, the Yerushalmi tells us, they, they tell us time, I remember the name of the time right now, and that he could not find a Megillah in Hebrew. All he could find is a Megillah in Greek. Now, you can read the Megillah in Greek, but the fact that he could not find anywhere a kosher Megillah says everything. Mm -hmm. um, and so that these, so he said, so, so these two scholars say, look at these guys were absolutely Hebraically illiterate. So they were able to read some stuff in Greek and they had the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Torah. But at the end of the day, they, 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 their, 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 their literacy, their Jewish literacy was so woeful that they just, they just, it was it was the process of assimilation was just was just inevitable, and uh, so and and he they argue that for some reason the rabbis decided to concentrate on the Jews of in the Jews in the areas that, uh, that were under their direct aegis, in other words, Egypt and Babylonia and, and Israel and and elsewhere, Greece, Asia Minor. Um, they didn't take responsibility for. Question is if they're right. Question is why. The one exception is southern Italy. The Jews. In the rabbis in Eretz Israel took really serious, were had serious concerns for the Jews of southern Italy. There was constant, um, there was constant traffic back and forth. They even sent. Uh, we know that uh, there's in the um, period after the Bar revolt, um, one of the Tanaim was mentioned in the Mishnah, Matthew ben Cherish, was sent to Rome. It's the first like shliach of the <laughs> of the Sachnut, and he set up a yeshiva there, and um, and 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 so on, but. But the the Jewish illiteracy elsewhere was just it was just massive. So when I think about the Jewish illiteracy in 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 the in the in the diaspora today, I, it causes me tremendous uh, tremendous concern. It's just the ignorance is just absolutely. Uh, well, I mean, I mean, we tend to look. Uh, there, there seems to often be a romanticization, romantic, romanticization, romanticization. What's the word I'm looking for? Romanticized version. Yeah, of okay, you know, to gotcha. say, oh, the previous generation was so Jewishly literate, and we today are are lacking. And it seems to me, um, you know, that that lack of Jewish literacy and high rates of assimilation wherever Jews could assimilate because because they could has has always been a facet of Jewish life. And right. if anything, we're in one of the most literate uh, Jewish time periods. Okay, so I, I want to make make I want to make a I have to make the distinction. Uh, you know, in, he, in, Amer in, in English, we use the word literacy. Uh, in Hebrew, there's a distinction between orianut, which means knowledge, mm -hmm. and alphabetiut, which means being able to read and write. Right. In pre-emancipation or pre-modern Europe or pre-modern um, pre or, or, the, or the, you know, Arab countries, you didn't need, since you, Jews lived primarily in, um, in closed communities and they were, and they were autonomous, and they were discriminated against. Um, 
they lived by they just lived, there was a they there was a natural rhythm and a natural texture mm-hmm. of Jewish life which preserved them. We, we call this uh, being the, the ability to be a lazy Jew. Right. Uh, yeah, but it, it, but it, I don't simply be lazy. It's a matter of being intuitive. You 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 learn by mimicking. It's called mimetic Judaism, actually. Uh, you learn by mimicking. You do what your father did, your mother did, your grandmother did, and that's and 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 tradition justifies itself. When Tevye the when Tevye the, the dairy man in Fiddler on the Roof says it's a tradition, I don't know. It's a tradition in a closed world. That's fine. His tragedy is the fact that his closed world was dissolving, and saying that's what we do is not enough. Right. Okay, so that's a very that's a very different kind of uh, situation. Yeah, look at Jews. Assimilation is the norm. Assimilation is the norm. The minority assimilates to the majority, and if that involves a certain amount of uh, apostasy of converting, it happened. How many Jews converted? Less than the Jew, than the non-Jews wanted, and more than the Jews wanted. That's basically the best uh, the best answer. Um, the um, the um, the truth of the matter, but the, but the truth of the matter is that 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 yes, there's more information available, um, but the average the average Jew in the world is woefully is woefully ignorant. The truth of the matter is the average Israeli is woefully ignorant too. I mean, I and by the way, that includes religious Jews. One of the one I give, I give a course uh, at Bar Ilan on the interrelation between it, is it Judaism, Islam, and and Christianity, which I have people from all, you know, both religious and graduates of religious and non-religious high schools. Um, and uh, I have them all in there because they're equally ignorant about literally everything, not just about, not just about uh, Christianity and Islam, also about all kinds of elements of Jewish history as well. Um, but, but still the, um, the, um, the situation in uh, the situation abroad is reminds me very much of um of, of what was going on in the Roman Empire after the destruction of the temple. Look at the, when I grew when I was growing up, and I didn't grow up Orthodox, I grew up in uh, Boston, conservative congregation. We had the opportunity. There was still a Hebraist movement in, in, his, in, in the United States, and you could grow up and be fluent in Hebrew, in Hebrew which as all my generation was. Um, on the contrary, when I started teaching at Barilan, I had to dumb down my Hebrew to be able to be understood because we learned you know, Hebrew, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's gone that's gone and and the fact that i'll put one thing the fact that so many orthodox jews have to resort to the english schottenstein talmud to do dafyomi is an indictment of the of the much touted jewish educational system Oh, I mean, almost in Aramaic. I mean, is it, I, fine, but you know what? Uh, if you have a normal education, it, that was never a, that was never a uh, that was never a, that was never a problem. Jews Jews and languages actually go together. I mean, um, the average uh, the average Jew again. I come back to Italy. The average Jew in Italy uh, when, his, when he went to yeshiva, he didn't just learn Aramaic and Hebrew. He also learned Italian and Latin. And we have wonderful poems that are written by Italian Jews. It's average, like you know lay people uh in which they have one line in hebrew and one line in italian and the same rhyme scheme so i kind of want to go take it back you know towards into history a little bit and then i want to conclude the discussion of of hanukkah uh, talking about how it's celebrated here in modern Mm -hmm. israel and zionist movement and then of course how it's celebrated in north america uh you know as one of the winter holidays the great you know the 
Christmas and, and how it's culturally uh, under, understood. Um, how, how was Hanukkah celebrated by the Jews of Europe in the Middle Ages? And also at Mizrahi Jews, I mean, the same, same patterns. Uh, look, at Hanukkah is not a major holiday. You like the lights, then you have, uh, and you have uh, one of the things which unites the communities is the fact that you eat something that's really, really oily. And that's because, and no, there's, there's, a, there's a pattern. It's actually a topic for another, I'm inviting myself again uh, to come back. Um, it, there's, a, there's a very serious pattern in the history of Judaism wherein food especially ends up uh, being used as a medium to get across um, a religious, uh, spiritual and national values. Uh, and where you engage, where you enlist all of your senses to be able to have a total experience of the major points. So here, for example, I mean, I can I have a whole, I give you a whole drush about the about the the theological significance of blintzes and and hum and touch. But in this case, the whole idea of having oil and the significance of the oil and the stir of the oil, it's why you have fried. It's where sufganiot and spinge on the one hand and latkes on the other. What they both have in common was before they had. Even before they had paper towels, you know, these things are dripping, dripping in oil. I mean, and you're, but you're using your taste buds to enhance the experience. Of, so that's, so that's, that you find everything. And how far back does that go? What? How far back does the tradition of eating oily food? Um, at least to the, at least to the high middle ages that I've been able to find. At least to the high middle ages. Um, you have, um, and every, and every, and every community does it a little bit differently. Uh, and then you have, you know, every 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 community um, will t- adopts different customs that will express different parts of the uh, different parts of the story. By the way, even if you find even if you find that some of the things that they adopt are come from the outside, the fact that we adopt things from the outside is not that's that's a natural. And the fact and and is and people say, oh, see that came from the non-Jews. When you talk about things from the outside world coming into into into, into Jewish folklore, it's not a question of, of 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 the things come in. Things obviously come in. We're all we're all we all we all we all assimilate certain things. The issue is what comes, and what significance is attributed to it. That's how you acclimatize. You basically basically naturalize and make it part of a Jewish uh, Jewish activity. Can you give an example? So, um, yeah, actually, I'll give you an example. There's a, I, I, not Dafka, not a Hanukkah story, but, um, oh, you know what? Mao's Thor, one of the, it's a lot of the music from Mao's Thor, different, different, different tunes are German. But so what? We know it as Mao's Thor and that's how we experience it. Right. Okay. So that's, uh, music is probably the best example. Uh, you know, some Jew heard something in the, you know, in, 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 the, in the air and he saw, oh, this fits and, and, and go. Um, and it was, so it was a very, you know, so you said, Hallelujah, you know, you say songs and songs of praise in the synagogue and you, and you eat latkes and you light the, light, the lights. And uh, in, the 17th, in the 16th century, you begin to hear about a practice of having Hanukkah parties. Um, there's a concept in Halakha called the Sudat Mitzvah, where you make a party and the party is itself a, a mitzvah. Um, there is a famous responsum of a 16th century rabbi named Rabbi Shlomo Luria, all the Lurias are related. Uh, in which he's asked, if I make a Hanukkah party, is that a sudat mitzvah? And he says, uh, I don't know. Then he goes a long discussion of what constitutes a sudat mitzvah. The fact that he's asked means that A, it's a relatively new thing, and B, that it's sort of like amorphous. There's a desire to sort of make more, to do more. 
but it was always very, very, Hanukkah was always very, very uh, sort of secondary holidays. There's not Pesach and, and the high holidays. Yeah. In America, it, it, when, the, when the Zionist movement started, um, and even before, uh, when proto-Zionism starts, uh, Hanukkah becomes an obvious, uh, an obvious thing to be revived. Because you're because, because, because soldiers and fighting, and we're going to redeem the country and redeem the and 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 this whole idea of the Jew who is a, who's a fighter and the new Jew and and and, and all this other stuff, um, it, it, it arises. So if everybody up until then is talking about the about the oil and the the, the eight and the eight days of the oil because that's a spiritual message, the, the military message was irrelevant all that time. But now all of a sudden it has it has a new possibility of finding finding expression. So the Zionist movement makes a big deal about it. Uh, and even secularize, and the and the and the secular Zionists secularize it. How do I know? Maccabi um, Moshe Ufodeh, who saved us? It wasn't God; it was the Maccabees. Yeah. Um, which it's it, it's a theolog for for an Orthodox Jew. It's a theologically problematic song, even though everybody sings. I know, but Akiva they made some kind of version, version. But uh, even, even just, I mean, I, I could I could say I I. I... I've seen photographs, uh, you know, around around the founding of the state of Israel. David David Ben Gurion leading parades through uh, through the area, which would become um, Modin. You know, they would they would have. Uh, they, listen, they have they have the they have the they have the the the, the, the Merot Salapid, where they where they where they carry a, a torch. The Maccabia, the Maccabia comes from the. Yeah. This is the whole thing about Jews: They're exercise and bodies and 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 transformative and stuff. Bar Kochba, Bar Kochba, Masada, the the Maccabees, all of this stuff, all of this stuff Actually, comes together. If you if you think and, and I've you know I've been thinking a lot of uh, about the parallels between our time and what we're experiencing today and the original story of Hanukkah and what was experienced during those periods, because I think the parallels are, are, are you know, you'd have to be blind not to see and, and understand that you could, could draw parallels, but it's, it's kind of like the, the height of irony in a way that, you know, we, the Maccabiah is about the Maccabim, but here it is, you know, it's a, it's a celebration. Olympics. It's a celebration of the Jewish Olympics. It's exactly right. the opposite yeah. of what the Maccabim themselves yeah. were, were, were after. Uh, I'll take it one step further. How, what, in America, Hanukkah becomes central for the exact opposite reason. It becomes the Jewish Christmas. Right. Right. And is it only yeah. because of the timing? Yeah, because the Jews feel awkward and they want something too. And especially, don't forget that in the, uh, I mean, it starts earlier, but in the 50s, there was this sacred triad, the sacred trinity, the Holy Trinity, Protestant, Catholic, and Jew. The right. famous book by Will Herbert. And so Jews, what are Jews going to have? Jews don't have Christmas. So we have Hanukkah. And it's in December. And there's no uh, prohibitions. And you can easily secularize it. And it's not too heavy. And it's not too, too Jew. It's not overly Jewish. And, um, and you make it and you can actually take out all the stuff that Americans don't like. Like, so be, instead of fight, look, it was a civil war. It was a bloody civil war in favor against universalism, against, against this kind of extreme universalism and, 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 and stuff like that. And so you make it more, you, you sort of like it, make it more anodyne. And now it's for freedom and for this and for that and for the other thing. When in fact, the point of the rebellion was not for independence. 
Right. It was for particularism. It was for particularism and it was for, and it was for, uh, it was for us being separate and different and whatever. And now Hanukkah gets recast as sort of like, um, you know, the, 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 because we don't believe, because, because Jews don't believe in Jews, Jesus. So they, so we, we have, um, so we have we have Hanukkah, which is sort of like nice and whatever. We'll have like it, it gets it gets disembodied. It gets disembodied. And by the way, and I remember people, you know, and it became inevitable. Um, Judah the Maccabee comes down this comes down the chimney to give gifts, <laughs> and honest to God, and and Hanukkah bushes. Yeah, all this stuff was. I mean, it was this the sort of a syncreti- the syncretism that we talked about that was part of the problem becomes characteristic of becomes characteristic of Hanukkah on houses. And, and, and it's something you know. It's something that uh, we both grew up in the states, and now we live here. And it's something that you very clearly notice when you um, when when you spend time in America during this time of year, and then you come here, and and, and it's, it's a different holiday. Um, it's a oh, different yeah. holiday, and I especially especially notice it among my more assimilated friends, my less observant friends for them, you know, because it's Christmas in, in that kind of symbolic way of, yeah, we're going to have the decorations and we're going to have the, the candle lighting. And, um, and, and, and it's, it's a Jewish Christmas in that sense, in that kind of secular sense. Um, and, and it's, it's really interesting that the focus had to shift to the oil into that miracle right. versus the military story, which, which as we're learning from you was always kind of the traditional backbone Right, and and it was and and it the whole point was again was to we want to be different and we want to don't want to and we don't want to merge with everyone else and it means it was a very Haredi that was a very Haredi kind of kind of kind of position right. even the moderates you know I mean you have to ask what, what would happen if such a thing happened today where would yeah. where would the modern Orthodox go but that was the that's the issue that was that was being faced I, I have to ask you something I have to ask you sure. something and before I do I'll remind uh, those listeners in case they've switched out and they're new listeners if you want to drop a question on the um, comment section of our Facebook page of the chat. You're welcome to do that. And we will try to introduce it into what's left of this podcast. Um, <clears throat> so you studied, uh, you got your smicha from Soloveitchik himself. From Rabbi Soloveitchik, yes. So Soloveitchik, for those who are not familiar, and you can you can explain this uh, in, in more depth, is the father really of modern orthodoxy. Right. And and you're, you're a modern orthodox rabbi. I, uh, I, I like I, to think so. <laughs> um, I go to a modern Orthodox community. I kind of joined this later um, in, in my life. I grew up uh, reform. Um, and, you know, Soloveitchik, you know, from, from I have to say, I, it's a very dense reading, at, at least for me. It's a very dense, difficult reading because he writes in a very kind of philosophical. Uh, well, he, write, he, write, he writes in German that's masking his English. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's exactly how. No, it's true. He yeah. explained it to me. And, um, but one of the things that stands out to me is this tension between how do you live a deeply religious life committed to Jewish law, committed to halacha, committed to Torah, committed to this particularism, and also be very much an active part of the world around you. Um, and in his case, he was writing in America and, and maybe before that in Europe. Um, but how do you become, how do you walk this fine line uh, between, you know, the Hanukkah story, the original Hanukkah story, holding onto your tradition almost at all right. costs, and yet, unlike the Haredim today, who close themselves off as much as possible from the outside world, be an active and engaged and helpful part of the society around you. Okay, so Rabbi Soloveitchik um, thought that um, people, the Jews live on two levels at the same time. We're part of the world and we're separate. We have our own concerns. Um, 
however, they're not of the same, they're not of the same, same uh, weight and importance and valence. Uh, if I had to, um, unfortunately, he never really worked this out, he presented this uh, in the theory, you know, directly, he sort of just did it. So I'm going to go with the, um, I'm going to go with the model that was, uh, that was offered by my other teacher, Professor Isidore Tursky, who was also his uh, son-in-law at Harvard. In a eulogy that he published uh, for his father-in-law, well, he actually gave it. I was actually at the eulogy, 1993, and then was published in, uh, in the volume tradition. In a volume of tradition, um, he said, "Look, it, the when it com when it comes to values, when it comes to what's important, pr primacy is always given to Torah and to and to Jewish narrow concerns and survival. Those are non-negotiable. However," At the same time, he thought that it was perfectly desirable to take what Ravon Lichtenstein called the best that's ever been, he quote Matthew Arnold, the best that's ever been said or written to enhance our lives, to enhance, um, <clears throat> to enhance our understanding of Torah, not to subordinate the Torah to Western culture, but on the contrary, to subordinate Western culture, bring it to the service of a much more nuanced, sensitive, sophisticated, um, understanding of uh, Torah and Jewish civilization, and that at the same time provides the Jew, who ostensibly is also, or should be, in totally ensconced in his own world, with a common cultural language to be able to engage with the outside world at the same time. So I think that's really the, uh, that's how I, I, that's how I understood understand his. Uh, that's a really hard position. line to walk. It's very hard. It's an elitist. It's a very elitist. A very elitist. Very elitist. It's a very elitist path. Um, and you can slip either way. So a lot of people have decided, I don't want to do this. So therefore, they'll go one way or the other. Um, what of, some of the, um, but what ends up happening, if you choose to go and to put the emphasis upon, I say, I want to accept, um, I want to put my right foot in the outside world and have as much Judaism as possible, that shifts the weight and it's inevitable that the Jewish components will, in fact, become uh, either weakened or disappear. Sure, I mean, look, that's the nature of the nature of the beast. We live in a world today that is it is exceedingly difficult to succeed. Um, you have to have an immense amount of education. The world around us is constantly changing. So even if you learn a specific, um, um, you know, academic field or a specific uh, job, a profession, you're constantly having to learn to stay on top of it. I feel like people are working at least in the modern era, people are working more, certainly more than when I was a kid, I remember people are working. And and, and yet to be a, um, a properly literate and observant Jew, again, whether you're Orthodox or not, it doesn't matter. I think to be to be a properly engaged Jew, you need a very high level of Jewish literacy. I think I think more than, than many other religions. It's a tremendous challenge. And, and to be a modern Orthodox Jew, or, or again, it doesn't even have to be Orthodox, but to be an engaged Jew in today's world, you have to have a massive amount of secular education and Jewish education and try to balance it all. And I often see, um, you know, I very much understand and, and come from a place of, of um, uh, I guess, just understanding that of, of those Jews who can't seem to balance it um, because the amount of time, the amount of mental pressure it takes to be able to do that is intense. Uh, I mean, we struggle in our house um, while balancing jobs and, and trying to do everything else to, you know, to learn ourselves, to, to make sure we're studying Jewish text and, and ourselves, 
and then to try to teach that to our children as well, while making sure that their, you know, academic pursuits are are as good as possible, and making sure yeah, that you have to prioritize. Yeah, and you have to realize that you know what I have to prioritize, and I'm going to if I have to choose between, you know, at the end of the day, if I have to choose between one more parak in the Rambam and and one more novel or or one more uh, one more uh, one more recent uh, New York Times bestseller or or even or even classical literature, I have to know I'm going to I'm going to sacrifice this for this. It is a matter of prioritizing. Well, forget the um, bestseller. Let's take it to a very practical step. I mean, in, in my line of work, and I think, Benny, you're in a similar line of work. We both have to be very um, up to date on current affairs and on politics and on history. Right. Uh, you know, I have to be very up to date. You know, I lecture on, on, on current events a lot. I have to know exactly what's going on in anything related to the Middle East or U.S.-Israel relations or, or, or you know, trends in Jewish identity and all of these things. And, and I say to myself, a lot of times, even this Shabbat, you know, okay, am I going to take out um, some Jewish text? Am I going to take out, uh, you know, what, I, what I've been trying to study lately? Or am I going to continue reading this history book because it makes me a better lecturer when I talk to groups about Israeli history or, or the Middle East? And, you know, it's always hard trying to find that balance. because, And then, then it's like add, add on, on top of that, your personal interests, you know, uh, well, you know, physical health, uh, working out, uh, p- preparing meals sure, for your sure, family. Sure. Okay. Well, well, working out is okay. Cause you have podcasts. Say, say that again. You're working out. is not a problem because you have podcasts. <laughs> well, it, it, it's true. It's, I mean, but that's life, right? I mean, we have to prioritize. Yeah. We're constantly prioritizing. We require the, a Jewish life requires incredible discipline. I mean, that's true. Even of Haredim, I mean, you know, we don't do this. Stuff, okay. Um, most many people, friends of mine say, no, Shabbos is just for Torah, as 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 um, as uh, tempting it might be to use the time for other things. It, it, it requires it requires discipline and the recognition that you're not there. There there's a quid pro quo. But the other issue is a question of, of I've talked about modeling for your children. It's quite it's if you're aware of what you wish you knew and what you wish you were doing. That's already that casts an atmosphere. In other words, the, the modality in which we live, sort of the sort of like what what Peter Berger used to call the sacred canopy, the sacred canopy in which we live, irrespective of how much you know, how many pages we did, that creates an ambiance which is a whole yeah. different ambiance than other than other people, and we won't be well, and so we won't binge on Netflix, Netflix, and we won't, um, and we won't binge binge on uh, on uh, on whatever it is, and and say that, that that's that's the that's the prioritization. The truth of the matter is that this is not, it's not just a modern Orthodox thing. My wife uh, studied with, is an artist, she's an art therapist. She studied with a famous uh, Russian artist <clears throat> whose name is Sasha Okin. And um, he doesn't watch Torah. He doesn't I learn Torah, but he doesn't, he, he, he reads whatever, you know, Russians are very good at this, uh, you know, reads whatever literature and whatever, and he makes sure that that's where he prioritizes. And, and that created an atmosphere in his home also as well together with his you know wife and children and and you know that's that's uh, that it's a tremendous challenge because we're also we get I, I think i think life again you know looking at the screen as we're doing now uh i think we get like sort of an acquired a, a sort of an, an acquired add yeah yeah um, absolutely yeah and, and i think that that's absolutely true uh especially true in our era i mean you mentioned briefly you know you said this our, our, our life of screens it's i personally uh i'm probably the odd one out in 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 any circle i'm in where i'm i'm you know i have a very minimal social media 
presence. Uh, you know, I, I do Facebook for this podcast and I have a, you know, for, for work purposes, I think before this podcast, I didn't do anything with Twitter or with any other social media platform. Um, and I've noticed just based on watching what happens in my own family or with my own friends that are more engaged in that medium that I have a tremendous, tremendously more, uh, attention span, not only attention span, but time, yeah. I have more time and I have so, more it's addictive. to learn about other things, Yeah, you know, and it's, and it's, it's, it's both plainfully obvious to state what I'm about to say. And also very, 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 you know, um, at the same time which is that if you spend less time playing a silly game on your cell phone you're going to have more time to read a book sure (laughs) (laughs) and if you're reading a book you are you know it could be any book it could be something about judaism it could be something about cooking it could be something about uh jewish cooking the the british monarchy in the 18th century whatever i mean it's you're freeing up time and it's about priorities you know we happen to live in a time where our technologies are also preying on our on our you know preying on our attention spans they they they're competing for our time and for our energy um and they're they're engineered to capture our you know to to take us in uh and to take up as much time as as humanly possible um so from a jewish point of view i will just tell you i mean um first of all kindle is you know god bless kindle you don't you you have the opportunity not to waste any time but but you wouldn't have that amazing library behind you Listen, I can't live without the physical book. I, I, can't I mean, thank God. I mean, it's not just Shabbos. It's the question of, you know, somebody, somebody, somebody put it beautifully that, that yes, you can have, you can have shots on, on your phone and all this other stuff, but you know what? You can't, you can't caress, you can't caress a phone. Right. It's true. Caress the safer. It doesn't have that smell. It doesn't have the smell. Right. It doesn't have the smell. It doesn't have the, it doesn't have the coffee stains, you know, like, like I, 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 the other day I was thinking that uh, I actually was drinking a cup of coffee and I was during the duff and, um, and, uh, and some coffee spilled on my Gemara. And I was thinking, you know, which I was letting myself, my imagination go like which grandson or grandchild or whatever is going to find this and say, Oh yeah, it was, it was sitting there with the alerting and it got the coffee on it. It's like the wine stains on the Haggadah, you know, right. but it's funny you mentioned Netflix earlier. Um, I, I, I love TV, but I, I really haven't had time to watch TV in the past. God, I don't know, a couple of years. Most of it's garbage. No, there's some amazing. No, stuff. not Netflix. TV. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I mean Netflix. I mean series on Netflix. Um, although I do enjoy garbage once in a while. Um, but aside aside from American football, I watch very little television. Um, but there is a show that I got into lately, and I don't know if you're aware of it. It's called Lucifer. Have you heard of this show? I heard my my kids watch it. Okay, so it fascinated. First of all, it's just very well done, but it fascinated me. It's this whole concept. Um, um, uh, 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 that Lucifer, um, you know, Satan comes to earth once in a while when he's bored and he takes human form. And uh, in this case, he owns a nightclub in Los Angeles and then gets bored and starts helping solve crimes in Los Angeles. And the series um, introduces, uh, it interplays with a lot of, um, I, I think it's more Christian than Jewish, but it interplays with a lot of mythology and it introduces a lot of characters um, you know, different angels, first of all, are introduced throughout demons. Um, Cain from, from Cain and Abel. Really? Uh, Eve wow. from Adam and Eve. It's spoilers for anybody who's, who hasn't watched it yet. Um, and, and, and it's, it, I, I was, I don't know. I, I'd be very curious to find someone much more knowledgeable in, um, in Jewish texts and Jewish mythology than I am to have a discussion about how 
any of what I'm seeing in the show is accurate as far as Jewish mythology or or even Christian mythology. And I, I think that'd just be a very curious, interesting discussion. My daughter is into my daughter is actually into it. Um, you know who, who um, Rabbi Natan Slifkin, the uh, from from Beit Shemesh, is uh, is is into that a lot. But it's okay. interesting also. I I I mean I'm not saying I don't watch TV. We have we have set, set set two set programs that I watch every week, which is my wife and I NCIS and The Good Doctor. <laughs> Um, but I'll tell you, it's interesting in that regard. We were talking about this yesterday, and in terms of, in terms of, um, um, okay, I'm, I don't, I, I shouldn't, uh, I, I don't know, he's controversial, but Ben Ben Shapiro likes to call this primetime propaganda. Um, on the Good Doctor, uh, in the se- in this there was a present season, they brought in new characters. One of the characters is a former, is a lapsed Hasidic guy who left his family and he's actually gay also and he's struggling with how to leave orthodoxy and be a doctor it's you know ever since the orthodox came out that that's the hot the hot thing to write about strikingly strikingly my wife has gotten me into this um there's a series there's a whole uh series of uh, programs by dick wolf who uh was originally from law and order called on chicago about chicago chicago fire chicago med chicago uh, pd so we've been watching chicago med and there they have, interestingly, a um, a black doctor. And it's not clear if he's Ethiopian, if he's a convert. I'm not sure, but he's very from. And he is very, it's a very respectful and accurate presentation of the kinds of things that a religious doctor who a Jewish religious doctor who has to interact with the outside world where, where, what he can do, what he can't do, um, his feelings about the, about, about the various things that come up and stuff like that. And it's strike. And it's very, it's, it's very, I find it very striking because the, the general trend in, uh, in the media is to emphasize those who go Hellenist. Mm-hmm. And here you have, I think for the first time an accurate and respectful, the first time I think I've ever seen a, uh, a, a, a Jewish religion, a religious Jewish character, who's being himself interesting yeah i always watch i, I watch shows and there's always the the token jew uh, on right. almost any show you can think of and you know i i'm one of those jews who has that instinct to be like oh he's jewish you know like i i, I get excited when there's a jewish character or a jewish actor um you know you can ask anybody who's seen a movie or a show with me and i was like pointing out, oh that actor's jewish that actor's jewish or the character's jewish um and, and, but at the same time i always get that pang that uh how assimilationist they are and how it seems like Hollywood, I think we could do a whole episode on this, how Hollywood, or at least the writers in Hollywood, many of whom are Jewish, um, seem to definitely include Jewish characters, but they're rarely really trying to hold on to their Jewish life or Jewish identity or Jewish practice. I would assume that they're just reflecting their own. It might be. It might be. Um, You don't have many, you know, I don't know. Do you know that? Well, I'm just saying, like, if you if you look, I don't know. Okay, I'm not in Hollywood. I don't right. know Hollywood people. I'm not involved. Okay, but I would assume, based on my understanding of who lives in Los Angeles, sure, to think that the Jews in in Hollywood are not, yeah, you know. So, uh, but that, that's why it's interesting to to Zionist, hear of, of a character uh, to hear of a character who is observant um, uh, on a show because you don't see that often. In fact, I don't know if I can think of any major show that's not focused on Jews that portrays observant. Um, highly engaged Jewish characters, and I don't know if I can think of another one. Off the top. So, so that, then it becomes a question. So it's using using historical parallels is always very dicey because nothing's the same. 
but this walking this fine line when you have a, a, a civilization which is even more aggressively assimilating than the Hellenist was. Hmm. Because here you're talking about, as in the time, one of, I mentioned that part of the dynamic in the, in the revolt was the periphery and the, and, the, and, the, and the outside towns and the villages versus, versus the city, which was by definition always more, more Hellenized. Um, here you're talking about a situation in which there is no, the, the, such divisions while they exist are much less, I don't know if effective isn't the word, they're much less sharp because with, 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 with electronic media, everything goes everywhere. It's one of the reasons why Haredi society is, is really at a, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a crossroads because the, um, the policy or the, the um, sort of the, the way that they dealt with the outside world up until now was to sort of like draw, withdraw behind, behind walls or behind uh, whatever it doesn't work anymore because everybody has a phone and everybody has the internet and you have to have the internet to make a living. So, so you have to confront the world, whether you like it or not, you can either do it consciously, you can do it unconsciously. You can either uh, you can either censor or, or or whatever, but you have to look at straight look at the phenomenon straight on because the old system doesn't work anymore. Um, the same thing in the states where where um, these where it's it's the the outside world is much more aggressive. The um, the broadcast medium is much more effective uh, in the sense of giving it you know in in, in terms of in terms of um, getting people to have a response. Uh, it's much more manipulative. Uh, because because uh, drama, whereas everybody watches television, not everybody went to the theater, which was a pagan activity. Uh, and as a result, so as a result, the challenge is even uh, is that much is that much greater. And you and the manipulate the way that uh, the way that media manipulates your emotionality um, means that it affects you even without you being aware of the fact that you're being affected. And that's a that's a tremendous. Uh, I mean, I, I've my impression is from. It's not really the political. It's not. Re- it wasn't really the last presidential election, but from the way that Jews from across the spectrum spoke, whether it's Haredim or whether it's Jewish liberals living in wherever it is, that they are profoundly part of the, them, I think they're much more, even the Haredim are much more American and much more assimilated than, uh, than I think they even get, understand on their own. I think it's something we can see. I mean, how do, how do we, Israelis like to make Anglos, your Anglos, you walk into a restaurant, they'll, they'll, they'll assume you don't know Hebrew, you know, all kinds of stuff, right? When do we know how Israeli we are? We go back there. Yeah, exactly. Especially now. Especially, Especially now. Especially we've, lately, yeah. we've talked about this ad nauseum, I think, on this show, just about how much this time period in the United States has made people like like ourselves who have lived here for over a decade really feel like, you know, we've we've moved on to a different era of, of reality when we go back to, to mm-hmm. the United States and see what has what has become. And it's you know not to state that, uh, you know, things weren't different before, but it's just it's it's so stark the difference um you know you you try to your memories are now some sort of a romantic version of what you think it it was when and, and i wonder if it was really ever that way that my memory you know serves me right or not or or, or yeah. what but, but well i mean my, I'm, I'm older than you guys i mean my parents my, my parents were second generation american actually my grandmother was a first generation american already but um we're second generation americans and now there was there was an atmosphere of ethnic 
warmth and familiarity, which uh, I, which is not transferable. As when you grow up, when you when you grow up in, in a traditional community, whether it's in uh, Marrakesh or in Poland, um, even if you stop being observant, you have certain sensitivities that you have. Sure. That you actually can, can transfer to your children, and second generation Americans had that. There's sort of a, a sense yeah. of ethnic, ethnic warmth and ethnic identity, but they could, they did not. My mother, my parents' generation overall did not succeed in passing that on to their children. Never mind for the uh, the generation and I, after. And that. I think that cuts across all diaspora groups. I think you saw that across all diaspora Absolutely. groups that, that moved to America, uh, right. especially because. And, and and I'll be careful not to launch a whole another hour of discussion here, which I think we could do. Um, you know, if we talk about the neutral space that uh, yeah. that that modern society that post enlightenment societies introduced to us, that all of a sudden you can be Jewish and then live in this neutral space as an American. You don't have to be Christian to be American, right? At least some people would like to. Professor Yaakov Katz, though, used to, uh, he, he's the one who came up with the idea of the, of the neutral space, that you, uh, you're, you're whatever religion you are at home, and then there's a neutral space. But the neutral space is always only semi-neutral. Right. It was never really neutral. Whether it was Christian, whether it was post-Christian, whatever the case might be, there was a certain expectation that you're going to get with the program, that there's a program in the neutral space, and you're going to get with it. Yeah. Um, what ends up happening, it's, it's strikingly, I'm, I'm, uh, in, in what my experience of interacting with people over the past nine months in the States, has been just how caught up, I mean, totally caught up in the, uh, in the polarization of American society to the degree that the that, that, that Jewish concerns, they're not even on the, uh, they can't even hear other concerns. So for example, I, I, had a, I wrote, a, I actually published a piece about this that got a lot of, got a lot of, uh, uh, got a lot of um, whatever it is. Uh, attention. Attention. Um, I um I meant after Biden won, so I wrote a piece. Uh, I mentioned to somebody that it's really striking that that forget about Trump, that what you see as a salvation, we are concerned about because what what Biden does about Iran is an existential issue for us. Now I think that's just you know it's a question. Two Jewish communities have two different you know yes the response was. To diabolize me, yeah. I had never. I mean, I, I've I, I've been involved in public life for a long time. I have never ever experienced the. the I, I called it a zobor, but the the, the the Americans don't know what that is. <laughs> it was the most incredible avalanche of delegitimization I'd ever. Right, yeah, because you you by doing that cast yourself as a Trump enabler, right. So, but let me, let me, but let me, let me so coming back to Hanukkah. Trump right. enabler. Yeah. Right. So coming back to Hanukkah though, let me just, let me just point this out. We mentioned about the, about the Hasmoneans that according to, let's see, let's see, in fact, yeah, let's use contemporary parlance. According to, um, you, uh, according to one school of thought, the reason why, uh, the reason why they came up with the story of, or they, they emphasize the story of the Pacha uh, Shemen is because they didn't like the Hasmoneans. And the truth of the matter is that the rabbis were extremely nuanced. They knew how to say nice things about people, even if the people were fundamentally bad. So, for example, Herod is not a hero in the eyes of Chazal. He's not. He was a miserable, murderous, tyrannical, corrupt SOB. There's no, and, and Chazal hated him. He had syphilis, too. 
That too. Well, man, that's not surprising. Um, that's not surprising. Joining the, uh, he can be with Henry VIII. Anyways, um, nevertheless, when it came to the temple, the rabbi said straight, Kol misha lo hordos, lo now, is they were willing to give credit to the person to, for, for the good thing he did. And, 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 and you, the, the program is called Juanced, right? Yeah, exactly. Run Nuance. Yeah, there we go. They were very Juanced we, people. We had this talk last week um, with a, a senior member of the American Jewish Committee, and she talked about how their organization is all about nuance in this Jewish space. And we, we were reflecting how it's very difficult to do these days. I personally, uh, I, I do not like Donald Trump as an individual, as a figure. And, and I think you would be um, doing a disservice to the Jewish people and to Israel if you do not recognize the good things he has done, whatever his motivations were for doing them, for right. the state of Israel, and in that sense, for, for Jewish history. And that's something that a lot of people, certainly in the States, and we may even lose a couple of listeners by saying the sentence, you have to recognize the, the, the good that comes out of certain people or administrations or regimes or governments, even if you despise them, at the deepest level, um, and vice versa. Um, you can say, uh, you know, about other, uh, I won't get into names, but other politicians or other leaders or figures and say, I think they're wonderful people. I think they did horrible things for the Jewish people or for whatever cause it is that I care. Right. And, and it's a difficult uh, position to be able to take. Look at my, let's flip it. My mother grew up in, a, it was a, grew up in the, during the Depression, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt was God. I mean, it's nothing. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Roosevelt was was he was a godlike figure, and you couldn't say anything bad about Roosevelt. Roosevelt. And I remember years ago, years later, when the when when the uh, the first book that came out with uh, a guy named Morse wrote a book called "While Six Million Died," um, describing the kind of uh, the kind of uh, passive neglect, and now yeah. we know it's active neglect. During during the Shoah that uh, that Roosevelt uh, that Roosevelt showed and the the total disregard uh, of uh, what was going on and he knew exactly what was doing. Um, my she couldn't hear. Yeah, can't say anything. But that, that's not you know. So it's not it's not it's not an unprecedented uh... narratives become truths. That's yeah. the problem. And um, for many, and and you know again. Uh, I, I'll agree with Dan 100% with your sentiments towards uh, towards the U.S. president. Um, he's been put on the same plane as as Adolf Hitler in, in the minds of many. I, I'm afraid, and I, and I don't say that uh, kindly because I think that uh, nobody's on the same plane as Adolf Hitler in modern history. So the world has a Shoah problem. They can't seem to get the only way to be able to get out of it is is by cheapening it. Yeah. Everything's Hitler, and therefore you're a Trump enabler. It's like you're a Nazi sympathizer. It's yeah. it's, you know, as I said last week, even a broken clock is correct twice a day. You know, let's right. give credit where it's due, and and you don't have to give any announce more than that. Um, but anyway, let's. Um, I think I think we should wrap up. Um, so, what can our listeners, you know, first off, they want to learn more about Jewish history in general and Hanukkah and kind of this era specifically, and then um, and then what kind of message can they take home with them as they you know are maybe listening to this as they're preparing for hanukkah or or as they're going to celebrate this with their family you know well, look at i mean i think both, that the, you know both from your scholar i said and maybe kind of address this both from your your scholarly hat but also from your rabbinical hat 
Look at the um, the truth. I and in this case, the two come together because at the end of the day, um, one of the um, one of the most uh, profound uh, lessons that I've learned after being a Jewish historian for uh, nigh on uh, forty five years is that um, is that the survival of the Jews and Judaism defies every single rule, uh, every single historical law that there is. Um, my uh, friend, uh, Professor Simcha Golden uh, from Tel Aviv University uh, calls it an enigma. And he's absolutely right. And the only way from, as, a, as, as a believing Jew that I can understand is the fact that we defy the laws of history because God has decided to preserve us. Now, that doesn't solve all of the theological questions and everybody will sit there and say, what about the Shoah? I don't know. There's some questions that I'm, they're beyond my pay grade. And they're legitimate questions, but there's no question that in my mind that 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 our existence here in Israel, and I, I can't speak to, I've been in Israel for almost 30 years, so I can't uh, I can't speak to being an expert of the uh, experience, the American Jewish experience anymore. But I think our experience here is that there are just so many remarkable things that show the hand of the hand of providence and the, our ability to be able to sustain ourselves despite ourselves. We should always remember that uh, the Maccabean revolt started as a civil war, and we should always remember that, where that can lead. Um, so I think that when we light the lights and we and we uh, and we uh, we we memorialize the uh, the the the, uh, the cruise of oil, which nobody saw, but which everybody believed happened, and as a result, just as just as we see the, we see the we see the events, and uh, believe there are larger larger forces at hand. That have kept us, uh, kept us in life and sustained us, and so on. So I think that's that's number one. I think number two is the fact the way that we in Israel have created Hanukkah as, or right, this year we won't be able to do it. It it becomes a Hanukkah becomes a wonderful expression of, um, of what we call here the biachad that everybody celebrates and wishes each other. And because there are no restrictions on travel and stuff like that on Hanukkah as opposed to Chag, it's one of these it's one of the few holidays in which everybody can can sort of like celebrate together. And and one of the most I think miraculous things about our life here is the fact that with all of the demonstrations and everything else, we all know very well what happens when chips are down. Uh, all that goes by the wayside and 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 we hang together there there's that there's that blind very strong solidarity which is nothing less than uh, in my opinion nothing less uh, than miraculous um the third thing is um i know it's going to sound a little maybe it might sound trivial but we i started by talking about sufganiyot latkes and spinge um one of the things that the way people are increasingly increasingly know about Hanukkah is the fact we're aware of what different traditions and what different types of Jews and different tribes do uh, together. And if there's anything that's really to celebrate as well as the fact that so many different uh, types of Jews are merging and mixing and matching. And, uh, and, uh, and I think Hanukkah also, uh, because of the fact that, that it's, not a, it's not a holiday which divides uh, religious and non-religious people, or traditional and non-traditional people, because of the lack of restriction, um, I think it's a, that's an occasion to celebrate that. Uh, to celebrate that as well. So, um, yeah, I think um, it it brings together a lot of what keeps us going. Yeah, and I'll uh, and I'll just add to that. Um, you know, uh, if anything, that kind of sharpened in my understanding is that, yeah, you know. 
to, to succeed, I think, as a Jew in life, and maybe this holiday brings it to the fore more than most, it's, it's, I guess we have to constantly figure out how to walk that front line between particularism and universalism and, uh, and, and you know, holding on to our traditions dearly while trying to be, you know, active members of our societies at large. Um, and, and I guess if we take, you know, the holiday itself and the old narrative and the new narrative and the Israeli narrative and the diaspora narrative, and, and if we kind of try to put them all together, that's that kind of fine line we have to walk. And I think that's a big part of what I uh, take out of this uh, conversation. Um, so, uh, Jeffrey Wolf. Being authentic is the beginning. Yeah. You start by being authentic. And I think that's what the, what the Hashemonim were fighting for. Let's be authentic. Yes. And and those who supported them, who were willing to be moderate Hellenists, and the first will be authentic. And once we're authentic, then we can have other things. If you don't, my, you know what? I, I have some experience in special ed. And one of the things that I learned uh, from experience in special ed is that little kids in therapeutic uh, nurseries, um, they learned that nobody's able to share if they don't have something of their own. Hmm. That's beautiful. Do we, uh, do we thank Antiochus? Uh, no, I think we can, uh, he can. Uh, <laughs> we can all together with this story. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're right. But you know what? There are there are other ways to be able to, to sort of remind Jews who they are. They don't have to have uh, they don't have to have enemies. It's not uh, I, I could do without. Yeah. Well, listen, Jeffrey, we, we may not be thanking him, but we definitely thank you for coming on the show today. Thank and you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. It was fabulous. It was enlightening to me in, in many ways. You know, before I think we were going back and forth. What are we going to talk about? And I was kind of getting into the thing of like what's the deal with the oil? Why do we even have to have that? Why is that something that's important for us to, you know, to, to remember at this time, because it seems like the, the true story is the story of like the historical events, but you, you really were able to bring it home and kind of give this Thank other, you, you know, I want, I want to add something about the, in terms of the story about the oil. I, um, I have a friend who uh, has been here even longer than me. He's been here almost 50 years. And uh, he, uh, we were talking about very odd things that happened to me here like things that you would have thought would belong in the twilight zone and he he said to me that you know he said i've been here a long time when i came i was the world skeptic but i've seen so many things in my time in israel that there's not a miracle that i don't believe in and i i i have no problem with the uh, believing in the in the story of the cruise of oil because i've just seen so many things that just defy Defy, defy what you would have expected. And uh, just like the way that the fact that we've survived this uh, defies what's, it. What's the famous Ben Gurion uh, sentence attributed to him? To be a, in Israel, to be a realist, you have to believe in we miracles. miracles. Yeah. That's right. true. So um, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. Chagurim Sameach, as we say. We would be glad to have you on the show again. I think we could talk to you about many, many. If people, if people want to find you, uh, uh, you know, online. I know you're you're sharing this. How can they? How can they find you? How can they can you? find me on Facebook. They can find me on Twitter. Um, they can. I I have a YouTube channel with uh, dozens of uh, lectures and uh, talks and stuff like that. And uh, my email is on my Facebook page. So uh, fantastic. They're welcome. They're welcome to ask questions or whatever. Well, have uh, happy Hanukkah. Same to you. And uh, you. thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Have a good night. You too. Bye-bye. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Fetherman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. 
For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.